Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. I'm Jared Bowen in for Marjorie Egan. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, the Royals are here. It's for a good cause, but people are so annoyed that their visit means snarled traffic around town for the next two days. We'll open up the phone and text lines and get your take on the Royal visit and all that fawning. Then we'll speak with Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion about President Biden's first state dinner at the White House and Representative Catherine Clark's new leadership position in the Democratic caucus. I'm Andrea Cabral, in for Jim Browdy. Stuart Rhodes, leader of the white supremacist domestic terror group The Oath Keepers, has been convicted of seditious conspiracy, guilty of seeking to keep former President Trump in power through an extensive plot that culminated in the January 6th insurrection. We'll speak with national security expert Juliet Kayyem about this and more. It's all ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen, joined by Andrea Cabral. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Jared. Long time no see, although, you know, just a couple of days away from you is always too long for it's, me. It's the same for you. How are you? I'm, I'm great. It's great to be back with you for today. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this all week. As have I. Well, Jimmy Marjorie, in case you haven't guessed it, they're off today. They will be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library. And even though Jane Lynch sadly had to postpone, she's only postponing, though. She'll be back on the show at some point. Uh, Jimmy Marjorie are still offering a special Friday raffle, and that is the chance to win one of three smug mugs. So if you come down to visit them at the Boston Public Library tomorrow, and remember, you don't need tickets or an RSVP to do that. You can enter the raffle to win one of three smug mugs. But in the meantime, the Prince and Princess of, of Wales, William and Catherine, have crossed the pond, flying commercial. They've been courtside at the Celtics with Michelle Wu and Maura Healy. They're visiting Chelsea and Somerville today, blocking roads near beloved market baskets. So give us a call or text us at 877-301-8970 to get your thoughts on this royal visit. Are you getting caught up in the royal hype? Are you excited by their visit since it's ultimately for a good cause and that would be fighting climate change, or are you annoyed by the whole spectacle, as many people around the market basket are, that they can't go (laughs) for just a few hours today? Are you annoyed by that, the media coverage, the traffic issues, plus the monarch's problematic history of colonialism? We were reminded about that again. We will talk a little bit about that. So again, our number is 877-301-8970. Give us a call or text us. So, Andrew, what do you think? I mean, it's not like we have the horse-drawn carriage whipping through the the cobblestone streets of Boston right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, as royal visits go, this is fairly subdued, but that's sort of in a category by itself. Uh, But uh, just a couple of things. So as I'm I'm watching the coverage of um, uh, the royals at the Celtics game, and it, you know, it's just a couple of minutes, so it's probably not a, a really clear snapshot of how people were behaving. But the one person who's into the game is Maura of Healy, course, yeah. who plays basketball. <laughs> she's actually watching, and she's, like, clapping, and everybody else is sort of, like, chatting. And she's like, look, the Celtics are playing. I, you know, I need to, I'll be back with you in a second. I need to pay attention to the game. But uh, so that was, that, was sort of, uh, that was sort of fun. But I think, you know, uh, how you feel about 
all of the pomp and circumstance around a royal visit has a lot to do with how you feel about the monarchy, just generally. And if, you know, if you're more focused on the colonization side and the oppression side, then you're ranging from, I guess, apathetic to annoyed. And if you're, um, you know, uh, uh, an Anglophile in the terms of the monarchy, then you're really excited. There were a lot of people that showed up in the pouring rain. In the pouring rain. You know, I I had a moment because it was actually unfolding not too far from from where I am. And I thought, well, maybe if it was a bright, sunny day, I might go down just to see, because it is history to have have them here and to see it. But I couldn't be bothered to go out in the pouring, pouring rain to see it. But I think it is also significant that they are here for a really extraordinary reason. And that is... Uh, addressing climate change and this competition and in a very brief but I thought pointed speech yesterday Prince William brought it all back home here to Boston now he has been inspired by President Kennedy's moonshot initiative and and the the reaches and what they what the, the the Kennedy administration strived for and how we need to do that. How do you do that? How do you galvanize a people? You do that with pomp and circumstance. We know that, that this is how the world works. No, and it is. It, it is about messaging and effective messaging. And it's also, you know, after a, a reign of a queen, you know, who died at 96, who became queen in her teens, people are looking at this new generation of royals to see how well they reconcile British history with themselves, um, being from a different generation, but also how well they take Britain for as long as the monarchy lasts into the coming century. So I I do think that there are some real opportunities here um, for them to sort of set the table on how the UK is going to be going forward. Um, And it'll never be to everyone's satisfaction, I'm sure of that. But I think, you know, they are an ally. They're a longtime ally of the United States. And, and uh, you know, w- w- the reactions that we're getting, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are, repre- are pretty much representative of our mixed feelings toward the monarchy. But I do think chief among them is, is, is a liking of the monarchy or, or, or an admiration, um, or if not a fascination with them. And and we're talking about some of the negative news happened to come out just as the royal visit was happening, which is one of the Queen's former ladies, now very much former ladies-in-waiting, had (laughs) at an event asked a a black woman where she came from. And when the woman replied that she came from the UK and... She's British. That's her background. And she was repeatedly pressed on that. And that lady-in-waiting has now been pushed aside. She also happens to be one of Prince William's godmothers. Uh, So we're reminded... Of the history yeah. of the monarchy, yeah. where his, they're reminded of the history of the, of the collective thinking, uh, and by no means has it gone away. It's and, a, I think it's her name is Lady Hussey, Lady Something Hussey, of course, because it's, it's it's always at least two names, if not three. But uh, you know, this was a guest, someone who was you know invited to this event, who was representing an organization. Um, it was around domestic violence, and uh, and she and she sort of persistently pressed her for this. But what what I was, you know, uh, I'm never surprised when I read about anything like that happening. What did make me wonder was this person has been attached to the royal household for a very very long time as a lady in waiting. There have been a number of events, daily events, weekly events, yearly events that she's been part of, and people of color have been have been in and out of for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, the palace, I don't understand how 
at this point in 2022, she's approaching a woman and, and having that conversation. It just, it, it just, I was just so struck by the fact that it just seemed insane to me that this woman was pretending as though there had never been anyone of color ever uh, in her in her presence as a member of the royal household. Well, and 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 she, what I couldn't understand. I was going to say she's in her eighties, and so you think, well, maybe she's had a more difficult time understanding this because so much of her life, maybe she was never questioned on things like this. But over the last few years. Clearly, the memo has gone around the palace saying right. we have got to get up with the times. Obviously, the Meghan Markle interview with Oprah Winfrey changed a lot of that when she revealed some of what has clearly the racism that has clearly existed in the palace and that was directed at her and her baby. And and for anybody who is as present as that to not understand it, so there is all of this swirling about. Not to mention the fact that people are really upset that they can't get to their market basket in Somerville today because of that traffic is, that restrictions. That is so unbrand for Somerville. You gotta love her. No, you. <laughs> Absolutely, well, gotta love them. We're talking probably a couple of hours, and it's not like all of the supermarkets are closed today in honor of the royal visit. But should we start going? Remind, a reminder: our calls are eight uh, numbers are eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Again, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. So you can call or text us. Should we go to the phones? Yeah, let's go to Amanda, who's calling us from Roslindale. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Um, so here's the thing. They're here for this big environmental award. They're supporting the environment and global warming. And yet they have this big motorcade and they're holding up traffic and all the vehicles in the traffic are idling and putting pollution in the air. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't see what they should be on public transportation. You know, that's I, a well, really good point. I thought the really same thing yesterday. The environment. Yeah. yeah. You saw the, the, the motorcade come out of their hotel downtown, and there were a lot of cars there. And I think there was some speculation of whether or not they would use the, the green line to get around town for, or, or the, even the orange line to get where they need to go if they're going uh, out to, well, I guess it's a green line that goes to Somerville, but nobody wants William and Kate diving into the Mystic River. So maybe they, <laughs> maybe they decided that wasn't a good plan. The security part of that is also, I mean, I think, Amanda, first of all, thanks for the call. And you're... And and your point is very well taken. I think there are myriad security challenges around them using public transportation because it is supposed to be available for public. I can imagine that uh, if closing down the market basket for a couple of hours to, because you have to close off the streets for security reasons, can you imagine what kind of uh, all-out war there would be if people didn't have access to the tea for a few hours because of the royals. But the point is well taken that the optics of that are sort of, you know, incongruous given what they're here for. Yeah, we should find out if all those black SUVs were, were electric vehicles or Yeah, that or would be something guzzlers. worth finding out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have, you know, we have supporters, too. We have a texter saying, I'm loving it. They are both such beautiful people. My husband keeps poo-pooing it. I had to ban him from the living room yesterday. Uh, so, yeah. Or you can just go on and watch Netflix and, and devoid, be completely the crown. diverted right. and watch something else. Yeah. No, there were people, genuinely, people who were being interviewed yesterday on all of the local news stations who were just thrilled um, and and really are happy to do to come down and to see them and consider it part of history, and no, and and that shouldn't be begrudged. You know, people wanting to to sort of be part of that shouldn't be begrudged. But but 
given the fact that we're A, Americans, and B, we're Massachusetts uh, people, which is a particular type of American, we're definitely going to have the emotions run the gamut here. So Karen from Rhode Island writes us, uh, I'm somewhat puzzled the media insists uh, on referring to the princess as Kate. William refers to her as Catherine. Her title is Catherine. As is, is it really appropriate to refer to her as Kate with a familiar nickname rather than her actual title? And we were having that conversation before, too. By the way, I have noticed more people have switched to calling her Princess Catherine and, and not Kate, uh, like the tabloids like to do. But we were having that conversation before this, this whole discussion about protocol and do you bow, do you curtsy if you were to come in contact with them, which I was kind of beyond my comprehension because they're not our royals, so that's not customary practice here in the United States. And I right. think we fought a few hundred years ago or a couple hundred years ago to make sure that that didn't happen anymore. Right. And that is that is a big deal. There, I mean, if you're, I think there's a protocol around if you're going to actually be um, an official that's in their presence, you're briefed on what what the protocol is and that you don't extend your hand. A handshake is fine, but you don't extend your hand first. There's no need to curtsy or bow because they are visiting the United States and it is not our custom here. Um, But there were people that were interviewed last night that are scheduled to meet with them in Chelsea today. Um, And one woman said she had been practicing her curtsy. You know, she intends to do it. So it's sort of a very individual choice. But yeah, there, you know, there's all of the stuff that's attendant to the monarchy that always makes at least some Americans say, wasn't there a war about this? Did I miss that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's always going to be pushback. Again, our number is 877-301-8970 to call or text. Let's go to Charlene calling from Natick. Hi, Charlene. Hey, Charlene. Hi. I, um, I'm not a real fan of the monarchy, you know, and I'm not going to get into any of the, you know, the negatives. I'm actually going to look at the positive, which is, the fact that they're visiting ROCA, which is not a very well-known nonprofit mentorship program that works with the really challenged youth, court, you know, court-involved or just vulnerable or ex-gang youth, um, is fabulous because that is an organization that makes a huge difference and didn't have a lot of visibility before. And I think we all need to really uh, appreciate what they've done. It's a positive thing that will carry on for a long time, and it will help a lot of people in the Boston um, community. This isn't Charlene who founded Roca. No, no, I didn't know a Charlene. Oh, okay. The the woman, the woman who founded Roca, I believe her name was Charlene. Um, But your, but your point is well taken. And I think that's, I think that's the part of this that makes it a little bit different. It is not, you know, just sort of a Royal visit of a King or a queen who's just here to do a Royal visit. There's purpose behind um, the reason for them being here, which has both global benefit, benefit to the United States and benefit to the UK. And I think you're right. That does help cast um, such things in a different light where people can see um, the positive end of it. It's just not a visit unto itself, but it has a purpose. I was struck by that, too. I had a friend at one point who worked for Roca, and so when I heard that they were visiting there, I was quite impressed as well, because I agree that it's not an an organization that has had a ton of attention, and they are doing amazing, incredible work. And so, obviously, they have a team that's working with them, and they've identified the places that they should go, and clearly, they have identified the most important places. And again, 
their mere presence here brings great attention and not just local attention, but international, national attention at this point so that what the work that Roca is doing can then be replicated, which is our whole point in having these conversations. I was struck even our, uh, the interview I heard this morning on our own air with our Morning Edition team talking to uh, the woman who's running it now. And it's not like they're just doing a drive-by either. They have legitimate, great, targeted conversations happening uh, over the course of the morning there. And I think that, you know, that that's always going to be um, a good thing, especially with an ally as close as the UK is to the United States, despite Brexit. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we got in another text from Paul from Worcester, which is, you know, this is a sort of on the more on the negative side. So we have the he says, so we have the Royals and Biden, uh, but a few more dignitaries to make <laughs> Christmas shopping traffic a royal pain in the butt. Maybe they should visit a few malls and royally screw us up. Well, Paul, I have a feeling that you're probably not alone, especially in Somerville today with that sentiment. There are a lot of people also speculating that the reason Jim and Marjorie are not here right now is because they're either on their own royal tour or they're meeting with them. How, how would we Having feel about tea. not knowing that? I can absolutely see Marjorie doing that. Yeah. I can. I just can. I can just see her having tea with the royals. That's funny because I could see Jim doing it more than I could see Marjorie. <laughs> doing it. All right, let's go to Judy calling from Providence. Hi, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. I am. Um, there were actually three little things I wanted to say. The first one was uh, in regards to them taking public transport. When President Biden went over to London for the Queen's funeral, he refused to go on the bus with all the other people and consequently was late to the funeral. So um, obviously his Secret Service um, outfit were not going to allow him to go anywhere near public transport. So it's, it's tit for tat. Um King Charles and Prince William, and King Charles especially, um, has been warning us about climate change for over 30 years. And he's basically been looked at like some sort of navel-gazing idiot. Um, and I truly believe that uh, the king and Prince William are going to just be really hands-on um, about climate change, which is great. And the other thing, this lady-in-waiting, Ladies in waiting are, um, they accompany the king, the queen, the queen consort, whoever, basically to um, help them through the day so that they know where they're going and what they're doing and if they need a drink of water or whatever. But it's also uh, the lady in waiting's responsibility to go around the room and find out as much as possible about all the people who are at an event before they are introduced to the queen so that. They know who they are, where they're from, what they're doing, why they're there, so that the queen has a, a little king now, has a, a slight idea of who this person is. Um, this lady-in-waiting has been around for 60 years, and I just cannot believe that she honestly meant to say anything at all that was uh, racist. Because they're just not. I mean, I know Megan wants everybody to think they're racist, but they're really, truly not. Well, right, well, thank you for the call, Judy. Thanks for the call, Judy. I mean, I, that was my issue, too, was how could she not know? But I, but I also think that the, the way the conversation uh, was reported anyway by the person who was the object of the or the target of the conversation and a witness was that when she said, I am a British origin, um, and then uh, said that she was uh, of... of uh, her parents emigrated from Africa in the in the 1950s. 
the response was, oh, so I knew we would get down to it at some point. In other words, you know, this is what I was trying to get at. Well, you know what? Well, how about if you explain to people why you're asking those questions? And you, if you don't accept the answer that they give you, maybe you give them some information that lets them know that you're not just being intrusive or rude, but that you're doing this for a purpose after you introduce yourself. Um, even leaving room for some miscommunication there. Um, but I but I do appreciate the call and the perspective on what a lady in, in, in waiting does and uh, what their purpose is at a function like that. So before you break, I have late breaking news. Marjorie, this is for, this is real. Marjorie just texted me. Oh, it's going away on my phone. Uh, she said, you've blown over cover, dining with the royals, of course. Jim, uh, alas, in his sweatsuit, ejected from the event. <laughs> she also says, we sound great together. So we're off to a good start, I think. Excellent. We are talking about the royals' trip to Boston. Are you thrilled? Are you bored? Indifferent? Different? Annoyed? Are our founding fathers rolling in their graves as we speak? Stick around. The conversation continues after a short break. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library. I'm distracted because now Jim is texting me. <laughs> so <laughs> to tell I'll, you he's not wearing horrible sweatpants. I'll have his update in just a moment. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm here joined by Andrea Cabral. And if you're just tuning in, we're getting your thoughts on Prince William and Princess Catherine here in Boston and all the coverage and pageantry of their visit. And to get your take, our number is 877-301-8970. Again, 877-301-8970. I'm just dying to check my phone here to see what Jim's version of their royal dining well, is. While you're doing that, let me just correct something that I, for some reason, had stuck in my head that it was a woman named Charlene Baldwin that founded Roca. It wasn't. It was Molly Baldwin. So this is, this is even worse because I actually know her. Um, so apologies to the... Oh, okay. So listen, I'm just really sorry to Charlene for mixing you up with somebody. And also apologize to Molly for getting your first name wrong. Um, when I actually know better, but it was Molly Baldwin that uh, founded Roca, uh, which is a great organization. And she was great. And if anybody hasn't had the chance, go back and listen to that uh, interview she had on Morning Edition this morning and talking about all they do, which is just incredible. And again, they get to share that with an international audience today. So the gym update is that he went to Market Basket. The entrance was blocked. You can enter through the exit. And he was working himself into a frenzy until he got there. Well, I'm sure I didn't know that they had a hot bar. Or they do have a hot bar, hot bar there. Well, they have why a hot, else would but be? they also have an unlimited supply of all brand, which would okay. be the other reason why. Okay. He would show up at Market Basket and stake the place up. From what I understand, he goes through it by the box. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's go back to our calls again. Our number is 877-301-8970, and we'll start with Scratch calling from Boston. Hi, Scratch. Hey. Hey, Jared. Hey, Andrea. Um, I, my, my name is Scratch. I, uh, I run a, a performance troupe called Beauties Burlesque, and we have a show. I've met you before, Scratch. It's nice to talk you, to you again. You, 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 you have met me before, Jared. It is nice to talk to you again. Um, we, we have a show at the Chelsea Theatre Works, which, for folks who are not familiar with it, is a, a, basically a block from where Roca is. And uh, the show opens tomorrow. And so, of course, today is, is Dress Tech, which, as Jared knows, is sort of the most important. It's, it's when we do, do a dry run of everything in the show and fix all the last-minute things. Um, half of my cast can't get to Chelsea right now. Oh, oh sorry no. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> oh, yes. 
So, um, you know, we're going to try and push things off into the evening and hope that the, the fear dies down and the, you know, the streets are opened up again and, um, you know, the royal guards stop harassing people. They're not harassing people. Nobody's being harassed. It's been, it's been, it's been fine. It's just been a little chaotic. Well, it is true. There are limited ways to get in and out of Chelsea. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's, there's, there was just no, they're just, you're just going to have to wait. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty much just going to, I mean, uh, I, for, for me, it, 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 it worked out okay, but yeah, there's no, um, I mean, a bunch of the streets are blocked off and it's just, um, the signage is not super. And of course we didn't know when they were going to show up. So, um, that's, uh, that was another, another part of it. But, and I mean, we knew it was today sometime, but, uh. Uh, nothing against Roca. They do fabulous work. I just wish they weren't uh, our, our uh, neighbors at the Chelsea Theater Works right now. Well, Scratch, two things. One, what's the name of your show that's opening tomorrow? It is the Scrooge Co. Holiday Office. A mix between the, the donkey show, uh, the office, and a, and a burlesque show. It's a, an immersive, <laughs> immersive holiday party, um, very, very loosely based on the Christmas Carol. How long are you running? Uh, we run this weekend and next weekend. Well, folks, you might not be able to get there today, <laughs> but <laughs> right. go don't, see the show. Don't, don't come today, uh, but uh, but come come out Saturday. That that'll be things will be, be be clear by then. And Jared, I'm sorry, you said two things. And the other is, I'm texting Jim right now to, while he's at Market Mark Basket just to get you some some provisions to bring you over for your rehearsal tonight. So <laughs> I'll I'll send Jim Browdy your way. He usually travels with his own police escort, so he should have no trouble getting there. Terrific, terrific. We'll be able to see see him above the barriers, too, as I recall. Jim's pretty tall. <laughs> That's right, he is. All right, thanks for the call. We are talking to you about how you feel about this uh, visit by the Royals. Our number is 877-301-8970. You can call or text. We have a texture that says, in their defense, the Royals flew over on a scheduled British Airways flight. They did. They flew commercial. They rode in a hybrid car to the hotel, and they're giving away millions to some very important causes and recognizing many more. Regarding the environment, this uh, texter says that uh, he or she is concerned, more concerned about all the cars starting remotely every morning and left running in their driveways <laughs> because it's just a little cold outside, it, which they remind us is against Massachusetts law if left running for more than five right. minutes. So we have both some an informational text and a public service announcement to the scofflaws that are starting their cars just because they might be a little chilly once they get inside. And that does bear repeating, too, from our previous caller, that this did start with Prince Charles, who did this a long time ago, right. was very much into organics and gardening, and people thought he was, I think the caller used the term navel-gazing, people thought he was frou-frou or something right. For, right. for why would you pay, why why is gardening so important to you, why are you paying to the attention to these issues? And again, that was a long time before the rest of the world, a majority of the rest of the world was waking up to it, and it's nice to see that this is carried down through William, which frankly I didn't even realize until this visit happened that he had taken up that mantle as well and will have a very large platform for the rest of his life to, to be a proponent. It actually reminds me of Jimmy Carter who solar panels. Jimmy Carter talked about solar panels and putting solar panels on the White House in the 70s <laughs> and was excoriated excoriated for it. it. You know, just wasn't manly enough. It wasn't presidential enough. And I'm sure the same with, with, uh, with Prince now King Charles. Um, it, that's not what, a, what the monarchy cares about. Not at that point. Well, again, our number is 877-301-8970. Let's go to up from Somerville. We have Peter calling on the line. Hi, Peter. Peter, are you at Market Basket? You know, I usually 
am. I'm a big fan of Market Basket, and I'm, I, you know, I guess we'll have to come later today. But um, I'm glad Jim is there. Um, I, uh, I can delay that uh, piece of the day. I'm real happy that uh, Greentown is getting some notice, and it's uh, an important stop for the Royals. Um, as you were just saying, politics can get in the way of, of, of global warming and the environment. Obviously, maybe uh, taking it away from politicians and, and giving it to the royals will put a little bit of an angle on it. Anyway, my real point is I'd love to uh, know if the royals, if, if uh, Catherine and William are going to see six. I think that would be... <laughs> Um, uh, an interesting, they probably saw it in London, but um, uh, it would be fun to to do that while they're in Boston. It's a great show. I think you agree, Jared. Um, I did. I had a lot of fun be... watching Six. We should remind people that, first of all, we know they love their pop, pop culture about themselves because reports have revealed that some of the family has watched The Crown. Uh, but for people who didn't... And they saw he, Hamilton, I'm and, sure. And they saw Hamilton. And yeah, King George doesn't come off very well there. <laughs> he comes off hilariously not well there. Uh, but Six, of course, is a musical. I, well, I, I should say, of course, but I talked about it on the air. It's a musical about the Six Wives of Henry VIII, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah. And so it's all... He was a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess when you, when you put it uh, that yeah, way. Yeah, he was. Yeah, because there were a couple in there. Uh, and it's, Maybe it's, I would, I'll withdraw the um, suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all through their point of view, and it's super fun, and it's uh, pop-infused music, not unlike attending a Spice Girls concert or something, but getting their per, the, their, the wives' perspective from their point of view, of course. Well, it's right in their neighborhood. They could walk a couple blocks and take it in and uh, be great for the show to have that exposure. And it's a great show. Well, I agree. Thank you for the call, Peter. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, I think overall, I think, you know, Peter's point, I think, is well taken that you, sometimes you do need ambassadors for very large, uh, significant global issues that aren't politicians, so that when they're presenting whatever it is that they're presenting, they're not coming necessarily from a political perspective, um, or at least it's perceived to be less of a political perspective, and it, and it gets the message through, um, like Malala. You look, you take you take a, a you know a global ambassador like Malala, um, or any of the other internet people who've done this on an international basis. Um, even you know Chef Jose Andres is an amazing ambassador for feeding hungry people. And it does, takes all the politics out of it. It's just doing good to do good. And has, um, yeah, exactly. And this is only the beginning. This is the first time that this prize is happening here in the United States. It's still relatively in its inception. There's so much work to be done, and it's a great launch pad, as it were, as it happens here, and you have so many people paying attention and people doing extraordinary work that's going to be honored, of course, with this big ceremony they're having with everyone. Uh, a lot of luminaries. Any Lennox, who I consider royalty, yes, all on yes. Friday night. And it'll boost its profile enormously. All right, that's all the time we have, and we thank everybody who weighed in. After a quick break, 
New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries is officially set to follow in the footsteps of Nancy Pelosi, and Massachusetts' own Catherine Clark will become number two Democrat. After a quick break, we'll get a roundup of the latest Washington headlines with Washington Post columnist Fall River's own E.J. Dion. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen here with Andrea Cabral. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library and come down to see them for a chance to win one of three smug mugs for the in-person raffle they're having tomorrow when you visit in person. We're joined now by the one and only E.J. Dion, hot off a visit to the White House this morning. He'll tell us why in just a moment. E.J. is a columnist for The Washington Post, a government professor at Georgetown University, a visiting professor at Harvard University, and a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Hi there. Hi. Uh, Great to be with you guys. Thanks very for nice, having me. Very nice to meet you, EJ. Uh, I'm Andrea Cabral. So yes, you, it's uh, lovely to meet you. I've been following your career for a long time. Have it's you great really? To be with you. Yeah, I have. <laughs> you know, I'm a Massachusetts kid, so I, uh, I love Massachusetts politics, and you're an important figure. That's very flattering. I appreciate that very much because I've been I've been reading you and listening to you and watching you forever. So, uh, so I I appreciate that very much. Um, so as Jerry just said, you know, you're hot off this uh, dinner with uh, uh, French President Macron. Uh, give us a little uh, idea of how it went and, and talk to us a little bit about the, the sort of new positioning that France finds itself in internationally and, and, uh, and on, the, on the global scene, given that Angela Merkel's, you know, retired and Boris Johnson is uh, in parts unknown. Well, you lifted me up there. I wasn't at the dinner, which is tonight. I was at the welcome ceremony outside. So I shivered a little with everybody else uh, out there. And uh, as uh, uh, somebody raised in that rare American Francophile family, uh, we, you know, as you could tell from my last name, perhaps my peeps came down from Quebec. So I grew up uh, speaking French and my family loved France. And so it was just exciting to see the usual traditional declarations of friendship, references to Lafayette on both sides, but also, and I think more interestingly for the time, some very pointed references to liberty and democracy. uh, And both Macron and Biden uh, spoke about Russian aggression in Ukraine and the need to stick together. Um, This is a time of both very close alliance. And as you said, Macron, young though he is, is kind of he's almost the old man of um, European politics right now because Britain has new leadership. Germany has relatively uh, new leadership. Italy has new leadership. And um, he has become uh, central to Europe and he's wanted to play that role. Um, and he's also become central uh, to any discussions that might be had with Vladimir Putin. At times, he has uh, annoyed Americans a little bit for reaching out to Putin, though I'm told by people in the administration that they are actually uh, find his reaching out to him useful because someday we may have to talk to him to bring 
to an end their dreadful uh, intervention there. Uh, the other thing that's going to be much discussed is the U.S. really under Biden has taken a page out of Europe's book uh, with a new industrial strategy focused on the big climate investments of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, big investments in my, uh, cre- uh, creating a chip industry here. And the Europeans, particularly on the auto aspect, only about 2% of the spending, but they think that uh, Biden has strongly favored the American and North American auto industry in that part of it. The, the administration says this is not really a big deal. Uh, and what they'd really like Europe to do is join us in subsidizing clean energy. So you really have a kind of historic reversal. The U.S. had always been anti-subsidy and critical of Europe, and now it's flipped around because we kind of got ahead of Europe on uh, investing in new technology to fight climate change. Well, it's interesting to look at at this reliance uh, between the two countries. I was also very, very struck to learn that Donald Trump, his first state dinner, the guest, was also Emmanuel Macron. And you have to realize that the Biden administration had to have looked at this and wouldn't necessarily want to replicate something from the Trump administration, but they saw this as a vital guest and a vital state dinner at this time. So what more do we read into what this portends for the future and the, the balance of power and the relationship? Relationship between the two countries going forward, especially given, as you just said, Macron is kind of the elder statesman of Europe at this point. Right. Well, also, we we offended the French a little bit with a big sort of military deal with uh, Australia and New Zealand, and the French felt frozen out, and there was a big controversy at the time. And Biden has tried very hard to say, you know, that was something we did not to offend France and has tried to improve relations. But Right now, it's really important, and France, as as you said, his leading role in Europe, is very important to holding Europe together against the Russians. And the Europeans and European politicians, but also their people, are going through, in a sense, a lot more than we are in terms of much higher energy prices, looking at what could be a very difficult winter, because they had made themselves very dependent on uh, Russian, um, you know, and Russian fuel. Um, and they've cut that off. And so it's very important to hold this alliance together. Uh, and, you know, there's some friction. And obviously, politicians naturally respond to some resentment in their own countries at economic troubles. And so uh, Biden, I think, wants to smooth things out, to help the Europeans where we can, but he is going to stand up for the investments that uh, he's made. And as I say, what the administration would prefer is to have a kind of harmonized regime of investments in new energy. Well, nothing works better than a situation that presents uh, good opportunities for both sides. Yes. So uh, I, I, yeah, I think this, this bodes well. Um, so switching gears just a bit, um, bringing it back uh, uh, completely to the United States. And you've been writing a lot about uh, especially after the midterms, about where Republicans are, uh, given that vote, given they're caught between, and this is a bed that they've clearly made and, and have to lie in, but but this the Trump base on which they rely and the reality of what that vote was and, and the message it sent in the midterms. Um, so talk to us a little bit about um, you your, your piece on Republicans' woes having a lot more to do 
with just Trump, but certainly with Trump being a big part of it. Right. I, I, the um, I, I had a piece that went up yesterday in the Post arguing that um, you, the, the odd thing is that as Trump weakens his role in the Republican Party, his hold on the Republican electorate grows because he continues to drive more and more moderates or non-extremists out of the Republican Party. And so the Republican base becomes more Trumpist with time, even as a lot of Republicans look at Trump and say he cost us big time. His Senate candidates got in the way of our their chances, Republican chances of uh, taking uh, the Senate. His candidates at the state level got their clocks clean. Massachusetts is a good example of that uh, in the governor's race. So is the governor's race in Maryland, where. I live where nominating Trumpists was lethal uh, to the uh, Republican uh, Party. Um, And yet the party itself on the ground is more Trumpist. And when you look at the House races, um, the Republicans uh, obviously did not have that red wave they hoped for. They barely control the House. This, number one, uh, makes Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be speaker, um, inclined to give all sorts of concessions to the Trumpists in the Republican caucus, uh, 31 of whom actually voted against him for a Republican leader to send a message. And he needs a unified party uh, to become speaker. But if you look at the election results, uh, the red districts actually got redder where the Republicans gained votes uh, in the 2022 election were in uh, for the most part, the most Republican and Trumpy areas. So you've got this real disconnect in American politics. A majority of Americans are moving away from Trump. Um, he, 58% disapproved of him of, of the voters, according uh, to the exit polls. Um, and yet the Republican Party is becoming more Trumpist. You you saw some pushback of from the Republicans against his uh, dinner with Nick Fuentes, this uh, uh, extreme far-right anti-Semite white nationalists. Um, but even Ke- but Kevin McCarthy was much more nuanced, shall we say, that's kind of charitable, um, because he didn't want to condemn Trump because he still needs those Trumpists in his caucus. Before we talk about Kevin McCarthy, though, I, I want to f- hear from what you what you think other, I guess, more moderate GOP members feels a little bit strange to describe Mitch McConnell in this way. Uh, Yes. But somebody who has been equivocating for a long time now, how much more emboldened does this make him to start speaking out and, again, recognizing what the future of the party is, especially if he doesn't stand up? Well, he spoke out against Trump's uh, dinner much more strongly than McCarthy, although he didn't mention Trump's name. He still held back a little bit, but uh, McConnell has a lot less to lose because Trump already hates McConnell, has been very clear about his opposition to McConnell. And McConnell tangled indirectly with Trump during the campaign when he went out of his way to say that the Republican chances of taking the Senate, and this turned out to be true, uh, were being hurt because of some of the candidates. Donald Trump pushed the party to nominate in Arizona, in Georgia, where there's a runoff coming up. Uh, in Pennsylvania, where uh, they also lost. Uh, in New Hampshire, Trump has made it very easy for Maggie Hassan uh, to win re-election. I mean, it was a tough campaign, but she ended up winning 
by quite a substantial margin up there. So McConnell has much less to lose uh, than McCarthy. But you're still seeing a reluctance to speak on. A lot of people are talking about Ron DeSantis, the governor of uh, Florida, running against Donald Trump. He hasn't spoken out against that dinner as for last I checked uh, because he wants to inherit Trump voters in uh, the Republican Party. So there's still, uh, even though Republicans, a lot of them privately would love to be rid of Trump, see him as hurting, having hurt them in 2022, still an awful lot of them are reluctant to speak out forcefully against him. Let's take a listen to uh, what McCarthy actually said. He was yeah. he was asked some questions uh, by the press about Trump hosting uh, this, uh, and, and Nick Fuentes is an unequivocal white nationalist, along with uh, Kanye West, who's sort of an unequivocal jackass at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, let's listen to what he said. I don't think anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. I think President Trump uh, came out four times and uh, condemned him and didn't know who he was. Well, he just said he didn't know who he was. He didn't condemn him or his ideology. Well, I condemn his ideology. It has no place in society. What is your take? And what about the former president deciding to have that dinner? The president didn't know who he was. Yeah, well, because, you know, everyone uh, gets invited to a dinner at Mar-a-Lago without Trump knowing exactly who it is that he's sitting down and having a dinner with. He didn't know Nick Fuentes like he didn't know who the Proud Boys were when he was asked during the debate. And so I think that that's clearly a lie. But here you see Kevin McCarthy walking that fine line that you're talking about. And, And my question is, ultimately, where does all of this leave the Republican Party with this a base that is that may be strong and all they have, but is shrinking and absent gerrymandered gerrymandering and the seats that they can hold on that way. A party that is uh, outnumbered by the people who do not want to see them in elected office. You made a good point, by the way, in underscoring the role of redistricting, whether it was gerrymanders or just straight up redistricting. You can make a case that uh, with slightly different district lines, the Democrats would have held on to the House, given that small margin the Republicans have. Uh, there are several seats you can look at. Um, Elaine Luria, uh, well known from the 1 6 committee, is a good example. It wasn't a gerrymander, but she lost a lot of her old district and probably lost her seat because of that. There are others like that. Um, I was so intrigued in, by that Kevin McCarthy interview. Um, You know, Trump never condemned Fuentes, yet Kevin McCarthy went out of his way to say four times. Why four times? Where did that pop into his head from? Or does it sound more credible if you say four times? And of course, the reporter quickly, uh, quickly corrected him. I think the disentanglement from Donald Trump is going to be very difficult. It's very clear he's weaker now. Uh, then he's been, I think, pretty much any, at any time uh, since he came down that uh, stairway, you do have Republicans at least being willing to say, uh, you know, he's not helping us or he's hurting us or it's time to move on. You have Republicans um, like Nikki Haley, like uh, Ron DeSantis, um, um, uh, like perhaps uh, Glenn Youngkin in the governor of uh, Virginia, fairly openly considering running for president against him, running for the Republican nomination. Um, But again, that McCarthy, I'm glad you played that because his sort of hemming and hawing and tap dancing is so symbolic of a Republican Party that 
knows it kind of should get rid of Trump, but really isn't willing to take him on frontally. And I think at some point they're just going to have to take him on. Well, so we're speaking with E.J. Dion from The Washington Post. You've mentioned Governor DeSantis quite a bit already in this uh, segment. So where does he come into all of this? But he is Trump by another name in a time in which they want to cast off the Trumpism part of the party. Where where does he where does he live in all of this? Well, you know, uh, there's uh, people interested in DeSantis might want to read a great piece by Mark Leibovich, a uh, great writer for The Atlantic, where DeSantis may be better on paper than he turns out to be as a candidate. Um, and uh, Leibovich's argument is he's the sort of guy not really um you know, great at dealing uh, with the sort of debate attacks, not great, uh, you know, spontaneously, uh, not a particularly warm character um, that, uh, you know, that uh, Trump might chop him up in a debate. But he is somebody who really won by a landslide and represents all of Trumpism. You know, he loves to say that uh, he has uh, made uh, Florida an anti-woke state definitively with a big Republican election victory. Um, the idea is uh, that if he can give the country Trumpism without Trump, a lot of Republicans would come home. I'm not sure that's true. And I think that there are going to be other Republicans saying, um, you know, we got to break a little bit more with this thing than DeSantis uh, would allow us to do. And again, He's he's entirely untested on the national stage, but he is definitely the flavor of the moment. Well, and I was just going to ask, is nobody talking about this because they don't want to give it fuel or does it just doesn't doesn't merit conversation among the GOP at this point? What, DeSantis' shortcomings yeah. or uh, um, what? Well, it's a little early. I, I, Mark was sort of quick out of the box with this. I've heard other people say they have some questions about his skills. You know, we, the election is still a couple of years away. I suspect that will be a leading indicator and we're going to see uh, more of that stuff. And obviously, um, if other Republicans get into this race, will uh, you know, he will be tested by them. And Trump has already started to go after him. I mean, there's nothing more more likely to set Trump off than a candidate he helped get elected who somehow thinks that it's not Trump's time anymore and runs against him. Trump views that as disloyalty and he'll do everything he can to destroy DeSantis. Well, hopefully uh, that that particular battle exhausts the country of both of them uh, yes, very, very quickly. Very that possible. would be great. Um, so, EJ, you had a great piece about um, how divided government requires creativity. And so many people when government is divided sort of throw up their hands and say, well, it's just going to be gridlock. We only have a couple of minutes, but I just wanted, because this piece has some really great um, suggestions about how to go forward, I just wanted you in about a minute or so to try to cover what your suggestions are, because I think they're great. Oh, well, bless you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, a few quick things. One, a lot of stuff got passed in the last Congress under Biden, the infrastructure investments, the high tech investments and chips uh, and the climate investments. Um, this is really a path to a new economy. Uh, Democrats have to show they can spend this money well and run government well. No one has more interest in showing government can work than progressives do. Uh, and so they should be open to reform. Second, 
I think that everybody talks about family values, but a lot of people use those words, don't do much for families. In that column, I proposed a campaign for America's families that would unite support for a child tax credit that helps all kinds of kids out of poverty, um, help for child care for working families, um, and also universal pre-K. Let's actually do something for families. Some of this might pass. A few Republicans are interested in some of these ideas, like people like Mitt Romney. Even if they don't pass, let's pr- prepare the way for a real uh, family policy. Last e- point. EJ, I'm sorry. People- I got to cut you off on the last point. I'm really sorry because I wanted everybody to hear it, but we'll mention it on the air. We're just running out of time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you Bless for being you with for us. for letting me get on my soapbox. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we have been speaking with E.J. Dion, columnist for The Washington Post, a government professor at Georgetown University, a visiting professor at Harvard University, and a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. After a quick break, the morning after the Club Q shooting, national security expert Julianne Kayyem was out with a new piece in The Atlantic, making the case for reevaluating the so-called run-hide-fight principle when it comes to gun violence. She'll talk about why she hates the idea and why we need heroes more than ever. This after a quick break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Jim Browdy, ahead on Boston Public Radio, when Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was campaigning for the job, she said she was open to making a majority of school committee seats elected. Voters signaled overwhelming support, but a year later, it's yet to happen. So what gives? We'll speak with former Education Secretary Paul Revel about this and how the Boston public schools are losing students of color. I'm Andrea Cabral, in for Marjorie Egan. Boston's arts industry is hamstrung by the pandemic and still struggles to get back in stride as people return to in-person events. We'll host a state-of-the-arts panel with Katherine Peterson from Arts Boston and Kathy Carr Kelly from Central Square Theatre. And we'll hear from Odie Henderson, the Boston Globe's new film critic, and we'll find out from him what we should be watching. Then we'll open the phone lines and hear about your most despised pet peeves. I have a few. It's all next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen here with Andrea Cabral. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library, even though Jane Lynch had to postpone her appearance. They are still running this raffle for the people who come down to the Boston Public Library to see the show in person tomorrow. You have a chance to win one of three smug mugs. It's going to be a land rush. I did, that's what I predict. It'll be. I have mine. I'm staying safely at home. I'm sure that there's going to be a... A run on those things. Wow, you're, you've won up me. I don't even have one. <laughs> well, we are joined now by Juliet Kayam. Juliet is a former assistant secretary for Homeland Security under President Barack Obama and the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her latest book is The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Hey there, Juliet. Nice to see you both. Hey, Juliet. You wrote uh, a fantastic piece for The Atlantic uh, called Rethinking Run, Hide, Fight, yeah. which is the response to... Uh, you know, mass shootings and and uh, and uh, potential mass violence, and and I'm I'm kind of obsessed with it and and uh, oh. dying to talk to you about it. But before we get to that, right. so the Oath Keepers had a bad day. Yeah, as just the song had goes, a bad week. Yeah, had a bad week. Yep. Um, who got convicted of what? 
and oh, give us an idea. Yeah. yeah, it is very. And give us an idea of the impact of this beyond the impact to the Oath Keepers in terms of the yeah. uh, potential, current and potential prosecutions related to the uh, insurrection going forward. Well, thanks. No, and a happy December. Can you believe it? Um, uh, I am, I'll, I'll have another piece in the Atlantic on the Stuart Rhodes and Oath Keepers trial. So let me try to decipher it. It was um, overwhelmingly positive for the United States case, as well as for the peaceful transition of power. Now there's different pieces to it. There are four other defendants and it, you, you sort of need an org chart and a you know, like a, a complicated uh, uh, screen to sort of figure out who got what and why. But let's just focus on Stuart Rhodes, who was the is a Yale Law School graduate, former paratrooper uh, and has uh, and created the Oath Keepers uh, over a, a decade and a half ago, but really did get traction for them um, over the course of the Trump administration, where they were sort of nurtured and and approved of. Let's just put it that way. OK, so the verdict was. Uh, uh, a seditious conspiracy, which is just essentially that Stuart Rhodes worked with others to undermine uh, or delay or disrupt the peaceful transition of power. There are specifics to it, uh, depending on you know uh, the, the legal claims, but that's that's it in English, um, and that's a big deal. These cases do not come around very often. The last one was. Uh, related to uh, uh, an Islamic terrorist organization. Uh, uh, it, it's a statute that came out of uh, the Civil War and uh, attempts to um, undermine uh, the, the, re the newly created union. So it's a serious piece of legislation and law. So that's the good news. So what was complicated about it was there were other charges uh, that uh, he was found not guilty of, including uh, the the that he did not uh, uh, pre-plan the attack on uh, the Capitol as it unfolded that day on January sixth. So how do you how, what does this mean that he's guilty yeah. of something right. that he didn't plan? Um, and so the way I close the circle and 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 uh, and uh, once my editor gets his hands on it, I, I do so for the Atlantic today is to basically say that the jury. Uh, uh, took seriously the notion of uh, of what incitement means. That what Stuart basically they called Stuart Rhodes bluff. In other words, he he cannot stand there and say disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, Trump is president. Biden is not. Uh, organize around that. Uh, do uh, uh, incite and motivate and recruit and raise money around that theme, and then claim uh, deniability. When the thing that would do just that, meaning storming the Capitol, actually happens. So they called his bluff. Um, and I really like what they did and said, OK, you may not have known specifically that this was how January 6th was going to unfold. In fact, you weren't even there, right, because he wasn't. We don't care. That's just a semantics, right? You were there, right? Because you knew it, 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 the, the likely result of everything you did unfolded in a way that you might not have directed or planned like a general would plan in a war, but it happened and you can't walk away from that. And it's a really subtle verdict. It took me a while to figure out what in fact they were saying. Thank and, um, you. Because I, I listen, I, I appreciate this explanation deeply because I thought the two things were incongruous and I could not figure out 
how, but jury verdicts are like that all the yeah, time. You know, you got, so I just kind of chalked it up to that. But your explanation makes a lot of sense. Well, tell my editor. <laughs> <laughs> and so many people are saying the big win here is what, of course, the House Select Committee was trying to do, too, was to explain that this was not a, a, this was not a group that went bad in the moment. No. That, 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 that wasn't something that just happened. That this, as you say, his hand was entirely there the entire time, and now the, the jury has found this. But what does this mean for the House Select Committee now yeah. that the, this first wave of verdicts has come in? So it means a couple of things uh, uh, for the future. So I don't know how much of an impact it will have for uh, Donald Trump specifically, unless there's some phone calls we don't know about between Stuart Rhodes and the president. I, I think that's unlikely. But um, uh, so that that investigation will go forward. But I think what that investi- what the verdict shows is the gravity of what actually happened January 6th, which is something that the committee has been pushing, that this was um, as close to disruption of the peaceful transfer of power that we've ever gotten since the Civil War. And I think people have to remember that, that 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 uh, Trump's goal wasn't, you know, stealing the boxes and saying, I won. His goal was delay. He What he wanted out of January 6th was that the certification would not occur. And then they're going to file all these lawsuits in what's called the fake electors lawsuits, which are going on in Georgia and elsewhere, and say, look, there's a serious challenge, and then create enough muddiness. So, so uh, it's not clear whether you can tie the two, but I think it shows the gravity of it. But the more important thing is, and I've been urging this everywhere I can, is that the resistance or the anti-Trumpers or whatever you want to call it, or the, or the, or the Democrats with the little D, right? Those, those who, who want a nation that's more stable than it's been uh, in the past should not look for a single blow. I mean, in other words, you know, the idea that Trump going to jail is, is the resolution he may, uh, but, or he may be indicted. What is happening is uh, slowly, but surely they are denigrating these cases are denigrating the capacity of these organizations to grow. And I think that I think we should not take that for granted, that that the option for them to grow or for them to become weaker was not written, was actually, you know, one road we were going to follow and one road we weren't. And that was not obvious in January of 2021. Uh, so I think uh, the Oath Keepers is over. They've all turned on each other. Stuart Rose will be in jail for a long time. Uh, it's going to be impossible for these groups to recruit. Uh, because they don't have the narrative of the win. This is how terror violent organizations actually recruit is, you know, we're, we're winners, right? Well, you're not winners right now. And I, and I think uh, it was uh, it was a real victory for a Justice Department that has gotten some criticisms for its delays, as well as for its low sentences of some of the people who actually were the, the foot soldiers. We're talking to national security expert Juliet Kayyem. So, Juliet, um, lots of coverage on these protests in China. Yeah. Res- you know, responding to uh, the sort of um, absolute lockdown around yeah. COVID. I want you to talk a little bit about um, uh, the persistence of these protests and yeah. how, in an authoritarian regime, protests that a COVID policy that might be appropriate at one time becomes a useful exactly. tool for an authoritarian regime. So tell yeah. tell our audience a little bit about so there's what's, the what's going on. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a China specialist, but I certainly have been very involved with the pandemic planning and response. And I think you're, I think you're exactly right. The, the right, a uh, right wing here 
in the United States is saying, oh, look at all these Democrats, you know, these these liberals complaining about what China's doing when they locked us down in 2020. Well, the difference is, is the availability of a vaccine, of course. Right. Things have changed. Right. So I want to just go back and say why this policy and this policy really does have to do with what we call vaccine diplomacy or, you know, vaccine national security, uh, which is um, China. China's vaccine is not good. It's not good. And uh, and they have uh, resisted entering the global market uh, to make their uh, population safer. Why? Uh, because it would show that they were not ahead. Uh, it's like borrowing a rocket during Sputnik, right? It's like you're not going to you're not going to borrow the Russians rocket. Um, and uh, and that is exactly what they refuse to do. So they never entered the market. Um uh, and so and and they're and a high proportion of their unvaccinated or elderly who are more isolated in rural areas. So they're looking at this. So why are they doing this? It's because they aren't us. Right. You know, we we get you know, we get covid after vaccines and we're totally fine. Whatever. They've got a not a successful vaccine that is not in um, high proportions in its population. So they are in March, April, you know, not so much, but, you know, they are in 2020 in some ways. And that's why they're doing this. Well, the population is not stupid. They are, they're looking at the World Cup and saying, why the heck are there, you know, a hundred countries of spectators <laughs> watching this thing, right? And so I don't want to align it with the World Cup, but they see what's happening in the world. And they say, this is just objectionable. And uh, the triggering point is these all things always have triggering points was, of course, a fire that, uh, the uh, people in a residential building died because the firefighters, uh, the, the people apparently were not let out of the building because they um, uh, uh, weren't masked. And the firefighters took a while to get there for the same reason. So and they blamed them. They, yeah, they, they blamed them for not rescu rescuing themselves. I mean, right. that was part of yeah. what happened. But I love that you just made the World Cup point because <laughs> we look at what's happening in Iran right now. And Andrea yeah. and I were talking about this before the show. It's still happening. People aren't talking about it as much as they should be around the world and including, I think, media here in the United States. But it's yeah. happening. An, an uprising against a government or a dictatorship that you wouldn't expect to happen. The same thing is happening in China right now. It's being compared to Tiananmen Square and what we saw happen there uh, or, or how it built. So is there a link? I mean, is there an yeah. agency that, that the Chinese are suddenly finding? Because we also know that a lot of their world is locked down because social media gets locked down, media gets locked down. Certainly their state-run media is not reporting on what's happening. Yeah. I mean, I think the link is youth. It is youth. It is either women or or the the young population in China. I was looking at a poll. It was mentioned on NPR this morning. I was looking at a poll um, that um, was done about what do the protesters want, right? This is really risky for them to answer. So they are predominantly younger. This is in China. They want to go back to normal for them. They're not asking for the crazy democracy that we live. They, they look at us and they go, we're nuts, right? They just want to go back to February of 2020. So for China, these are not, this isn't, is this a threat to, the Chinese Communist Party, possibly, um, and its rule, but it, it may just be a threat to Xi and 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 how he is adapting to uh, uh, to the demands of a younger generation. Then move over to to uh, 
uh, Tehran, essentially, a, a young woman is killed in custody uh, for not adhering to a dress code that that the conservative religious elements demand. And uh, the young woman, it's the young woman. They get out. And I mean, you look at these pictures. Now the older woman, now the men, now the soccer, the, the Iranian soccer team come out. Um, but it was it's you know, it, you, you can't have populations of 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, uh, unemployed as you do in 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 China because of COVID, or fifty percent of your population not able to simply walk down the street uh, and think that that's sustainable without force, and that's what these women and young people in China are, uh, you know, they're they're challenging, right? Okay, do it. Let's see what happens. You can't. Fifty percent of your population is a lot of your population to go against. Yeah. Well, we know what the youth vote is doing here too. So exactly. It is, yeah, it exactly. Is, I think it's it, my it's only time. hope. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's time. I mean, it is. You know, I mean, these young women in Iran. You know, they 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 have access to all the imagery of even other Muslim countries. Um, and they're looking around and they're saying, including once again, the World Cup uh, and looking around and saying this is not sustainable. Well, staying stateside, in my day, we had stop, yeah. drop and roll because right. yes. that was the advice you were given if there was a fire. That was the, you know, sadly, then I, that was the extent of the training that you had. To have. I'm so I'm old enough now. Now, it's a it's not a it's not a direct memory, but I am old enough to remember duck and cover. Oh, yeah. When a nuclear right. bomb goes off yeah. in your town or your city, get under the desk. That was yeah. that was that was probably a low point. Yeah, they. Yeah. For me, they just showed us that horrible movie. Remember in the 1980s that scared everybody the day after tomorrow or something. Yeah, the basically, day after. The day after. That yeah, was really because well there is done. no tomorrow, right. basically. And uh, I, I think that's all we needed because it still sits with me. But, but now, sadly, the the phrase is "run, hide, yeah. fight" because of active shooter situations. But you've just, as Andrea started off the segment, saying you've just written about this, and what do you think about this now? Oh wow! Yeah, then I love uh, Andrea. I'd love to hear your thoughts. This was not an easy. <laughs> column to write uh you and i live in a world that has sort of absorbed this in our in our in our bloodstream uh this the run hide fight is the essentially the order of training for populations that find themselves in active shooter cases it comes out of column it, it's it comes from israel but it comes out of columbine essentially where if you actually look at where the deaths occurred at columbine over 20 years ago um it was in it was because the students were told to go to the library. Well, then when the two shooters walk in, that's where actually 80 or 90 percent of the killings occurred. The same would happen in the Pulse nightclub. Um, the, uh, they all went into uh, a lot of the men went into the to the restroom that is and ended up being the place where most of the poor, horrible slaughter occurred. So you want to run first, hide if you must and engage, you know, only as a last resort. So. I don't, first of all, can I just start like, this is an insane conversation to have, like, how would you survive an active shooter? Like, I need to start there as I do the column, like, um, but I just, you know, I needed, I need to be also honest with, 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 you know, people who read me or, or, or listen, which is the data is starting to show that running still is the best, but it isn't at all clear that hiding is is going to be helpful given the pace by which the killings are occurring and the data starting to show that engagement not 
a good guy with a gun, although there are ca- there's at least one major case like that. But engagement um, can actually uh, take the fight to the shooter who gets distracted and you can minimize harm. The most recent case, of course, what triggered this was, of course, the uh, case of the um, uh, in the in the Q uh, uh, club uh, in, in Colorado, uh, where a former army, uh, or a veteran, uh, basically, you know, engages the shooter and then, uh, a, a, a trans woman, uh, and, and, uh, who was there for the, sh- who was there in the show uh, starts kicking the living daylights out of him with her high heels, which is just such a perfect imagery for, for what was going on. So I, you know, I'm, it's, it's not easy because it's, a it's like a default, right? It is, it is, you know, but uh, you also, uh, and some people aren't built to engage. Uh, you don't want your kids to engage. We still want lockdowns in schools, but I'm, I'm curious, Andrea, what you think? Cause it's, she knows how, uh, <laughs> how difficult it is to, to, to walk away from the, uh, you know, from the very structure that so many of us are a part of. And I just, just one more thing. I got a lot of feedback from uh, police chiefs and others who I know in this space. And they said, uh, you know, basically, I've been thinking this for a while. Wow. Yeah. I know. I, I, listen, I, the piece really did hit me. I don't have kids. And the piece yeah. really did hit me. I hope parents, it's in the Atlantic. I hope uh, parents take a few minutes and actually read this piece because it, I think the reason why the piece is so compelling is it goes, it strikes at the heart of our ability on our sense of our own ability to protect the people that we love, especially our children. And and run, hide, and fight, you know, made a lot of sense before there was the potential that there would be shooters who knew exactly where you would run, exactly where you would hide, and that you wouldn't fight. Like the yeah. Uvalde uh, shooter. Yeah. He had been trained. He th- he was a kid in the school where they did yeah. lockdown drills. Such where a they great did, point. Yeah. he knew where people were going. That teachers were going to bar those, try to bar those doors and keep him out. He so he knew where to go. That's part of to me what makes it antiquated. But to your to your sort of initial point, the fact that well yeah. we talk about run hide fight or is there something better and we will not say take the guns away. Yeah, is completely makes it even more insane. It's like it's insane you're, you've got an obvious good solution here, but let's talk about all of the things we can do short of that, which causes a level of anxiety. I just can't. Yeah. I, I just no, can't imagine. Just... I mean, I I think the the idea of engagement really needs to be part of the conversation going forward. Your last line in it, your last line actually almost made me cry. In the last line of this, uh, Juliet says. I'm not ready to say I want my young kids to fight if, God forbid, they encounter a mass shooter. But I'm willing to admit that maybe I want someone present to fight for them. I don't love it. I don't even like it. In fact, I hate it. And that it was that's a perfect ending to this is that you want the guy who was at the nightclub in Colorado to be there. Right. And you want him to be brave enough to do it. You don't necessarily want it to be you or someone that you love, but you have to recognize that maybe it will be you or so, or someone that you yeah. are. Yeah, and I think and you know, part of it is you know what's your what's your inclination like what is what is your you know what is your yeah, some of this genetic made most people freeze so I should just make that clear so one of the reasons why just psychologically one of the reasons why run became 
you know, we're, we're pounding it into people's heads is because people actually do freeze. So you're like, get the heck out of Dodge. Right. But I think, um, uh, you know, but, but engagement, you know, could I do it? Maybe, you know, I mean, I was sort of, you know, pretty conscious of what's going on around me, just given my professional experience, but I don't expect a lot of people and that's okay too. But I do think it's a conversation worth having, but if, can I go back to youth because, um, the insanity of this conversation, um, but it's it not insane. Yeah. It's I mean, no, but it's just it's it's I had never heard the term generation lockdown until maybe the last two or three years. And one of my students actually said it in office hours. I was like, what? And he goes, Oh, well, we're generation lockdown. And I was like, Yeah, you're That's the post so sad. Columbine. They're the ones, and they, you know, if you look at their voting patterns, if you look at what happened in the in, in the last month, they're they're kind of done with our thoughts and prayers, which is good. Uh, but I do think that that that, you know, I think it's good that Biden is still having this conversation about assault rifles because generation uh, generation lockdown is prioritizing gun control as much as pro gun right. rights voters prioritized it as number one for them. And I think that's that's key. We're finally elevating it as a key thing, just as a reproductive rights were. Which is fantastic because what has been stolen from them, which we didn't have to grow up like yeah. that. What has been they deserve to take back what has been stolen from them by people who care more about money and care very little about yeah. uh, mass death. Well, that's what, and that's why I think it's so important that you've written about this and that we were talking so much about Club Q because there, yeah. I think there is every reasonable expectation. There's no more apologizing for having this conversation. Yes, it's grim. It's sorry to have this conversation on a bright, sunny day and so close to the yeah. holidays, but there's every reasonable expectation now that this is going to happen to you because it is so pervasive. And so I think when we have these conversations, that does stick in your mind. And, and you know, you've also pointed out in your piece that these all happen within two minutes so That's, you have yeah. to think so quickly right. but and you can't wait for right for, for the cops right. assuming that they're even good which we've seen many instances where they're not but hopefully you have this model that flashes either run or you have the model that flashes in your head about the gentleman from club q who did step forward and, and take the situation away it's it's every everybody has yeah. to come and, to grips with reality until we change the reality and let's keep in mind the fight part of this is going to take a more preeminent role because you have people in congress the lauren bulberts of the world and others who are uh their rhetoric which I, and I would I would argue that it's not speech it's it's practically action um is inciting this so the club Q shooter ends up being praised in, on uh some of these uh websites I mean not websites uh, some of the social media and there are calls for this to be repeated right yeah. and you have that echoed by members of congress that are yeah. transphobic that are homophobic it's insane and so I think the fight back part of this Part of that is people fighting back against the hatred and yeah. the bigotry and the prejudice that causes people to some nut job to take. And I, and I use that term loosely because I think they're more lucid than nut job to take, uh, you know, uh, an AK-47 and walk into a place like that because yeah. of the nonsense they've been feeding themselves 24-7. Well, let's right. just leave on a, a positive note. We, we, yes. ran, we ran over too long to ask I, you about did, the Royals. But on, Fri oh. on Friday, is this going to be the safest place in the world? Do we have the Royals and the president here? Is this, yes, is, is it, it going will to be. be. The safest place? It, it, it will be. If you, if you don't have to get in your car, do not get into your car <laughs> and go into Boston 
Nation on Friday. Um, uh, but it will be fun. It's a great event uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and for a good cause. But uh, the, the Royals, nothing that they don't expect. Uh, they are not even heads of state. And you can imagine what it would be like once he's, once he's king and she's queen. I will say one thing. Whatever is in that royal, uh, I think I know what's in that royal water. I saw pictures of her yesterday. Any woman with hair yesterday in Boston <laughs> with that rain had a bad hair day. Like we gave up on it. And I see her come out. I was like, how is she having a good hair day in Boston? It's that airplane. Hum- it's the airplane humidity. Exactly. Exactly. Whatever she has, I would like. Well, it's always also a good thing to have international security um, you know, uh, procedures to have two countries yeah. working for security because yeah. it always strengthens. They strengthens them individually and strengthens them yeah. collectively. So I'll, this is a good thing. I'll say something funny though. I, you know, like we've had prime ministers come here or people who have been, you know, Boris Johnson, Theresa May when she was secretary of, of home secretary. Um, and, um, and so I, you know, I, I, I have an inkling of this or I'll meet them or whatever. And I have never seen anything like the royals like give them give me a prime you know there's like a prime minister every two weeks in britain now right so like give me a prime minister any day we barely notice in boston you know two royals and uh and the whole place is gonna stop all right so are, do we have time for one more no no we're, I think we're all no, done unfortunately, oh we have to go. so fun well we, we you know i there were we were gonna talk about killer robots but we'll talk about killer yeah. robots the next yeah. time you're i on. know thank okay, you well, so much you guys soon okay have a good Absolutely. one bye We've been speaking with Juliet Kayyem. She's the former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Barack Obama and the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Her latest book is The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Coming up, research on student achievement in the years post-2020 makes it easy to visualize the scars of learning loss, getting parents to accept that it is affecting their own kid. Well, that's a whole other story. After a quick break, the latest from the world of education with former Massachusetts Education Secretary Paul Revel. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen, joined by Andrea Cabral. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow live at the Boston Public Library. You don't need tickets or an RSVP. You can just show up there and enter a raffle tomorrow to win one of three smug mugs if you show up in person. We know how highly coveted they are. So we're joined now by Paul Revel. Paul's the former Secretary of Education and a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. Hi, Paul. Good to be with you, Jared and Andrea. Oh, how are you, Paul? I'm just fine. Well, let, let, me, let me start off with something that gives me agita, which would, could basically be pretty much anything. Um, <laughs> so we, we, the Biden administration um, uh, puts forth this uh, plan to um, pause, uh, not pause student loan payments, but to uh, give an amnesty on student loan payments, and there's a lot of a back and forth of. about it, a portion of them, right? Yeah. So you get $10,000, $10, um, but if you have a Pell Grant, it's up to $20,000. $20, yep. 
And uh, of course, you know, students or former students are extremely excited about this because it means a great deal in decreasing, you know, student decreasing student debt is decreasing a lot of debt for a lot of young people. And uh, needless to say, this is probably inevitable, but uh, Republicans sort of rushed into court and uh, got a favorable decision um, uh, in the Court of Appeals that is now required, uh, the program is now essentially stopped and not even taking applications anymore. So what has Biden's response been to this, and where do you ultimately think this ends? Well, I think the uh, President Biden is determined to persist in this because he sees it, rightly so, as a very significant problem. We're trying to encourage people um, in the kind of uh, economy and democracy we have to go to post-secondary education. Costs there have been rising astronomically. Public financing hasn't been keeping up, so the burden has gone on students and families over time. And we now, you know, the student debt load is the largest loan load aside from mortgages, uh, even more than credit cards in the United States. So it's an enormous load on a particular segment of the population that therefore is prevented from being active in the economy in other ways, from buying houses, buying cars, things like this. So I think <clears throat> um, President Biden heard this uh, on the campaign trail. He certainly – we've been hearing this for decades now because, as public financing has tapered off in this regard. And so I think he's determined to go through with it. So they're, they're persisting. The courts have stopped the plan right now. The Republicans oppose it. There are even some Democrats on the, the far left side who feel it doesn't go far enough. Therefore, they shouldn't do it, which is crazy in my view. But um, I agree. We have some crazies. And, uh, you know, the uh, they're going to make the case. So currently what they've said is uh, he's going to use executive authority to postpone payments. So they're holding off. They're, they're saying to people, even though the court is ruled we can't go forward with this, we're not going to restart payments until uh, June. But effectively, if you read the fine print, it's two months after June. So it wouldn't really be until September 1st that people would have to start paying if the courts have not resolved it by then. Well, this isn't necessarily a rule, but how do you advise people? As I was thinking about this this morning, I got sort of a nod in my stomach thinking how many people already planned around this happening? Because when the news came out this summer or spring, whenever the announcement came, it sounded like this was done. This was a fait accompli. People were already checking their accounts to see, you know, if, if things had been depleted. And now they're in this zone of wondering if it will even happen, because that very much seems to remain in question as it works its way through the courts. Well, I think it's definitely in question. So, I mean, if I think if I were advising somebody on this, I would say don't count your chickens before they hatch here. I mean, the, the uh, this is going to be challenged because, I mean, the Republicans are putting a lot of energy into it. And we've got a court which, let's face it, uh, uh, you know, has, has already pushed back some um, sort of uh, smaller appeals on this matter. And so there's some indication that the new justices are – are going to uh, create a majority that may well uh, decide that we can't do this. And then there are a whole bunch of people out there arguing that this will contribute to inflation or that it serves too small a segment of the population. But really, if you step back and you, 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 you think about the load we're putting on families and the imperative to educating to higher levels our population and to relieving the outsized burden of higher education, then this is just a no-brainer. This is a start on what hopefully is a longer-term program of uh, relieving this excess b debt and getting 
the public, getting the government in the public interest to step up and do a better job of making college affordable for people. Well, what I'm always floored by is the very people who are saying that this somehow is going to have this negative impact on the economy are the people who whose emotions ran from, um, you know, jumping from their seats and cheering to being, you know, conspicuously silent when the Trump tax breaks for corporations and incredibly wealthy people went through, which ballooned the deficit by trillions of dollars. Right. This is this is that was just a giveaway. That was a flat out giveaway um, of of a, a shifting of the tax burden to the middle and lower classes from the wealthier classes. And they had no problem with this. Right. This is taking a class. of, And I remember when this happened. I was a student in the 80s. And mm-hmm. one of the first things Ronald Reagan did was he got rid of grants because that was when the administration began to see students as a class of debtors. They had never been looked upon as mm. a class of potential debtors before. We cared about education. And we, they began to say, well, you know what? We could actually put them in debt a lot earlier than we've been right, doing it. Right. And now and that helps the bank. Anything that helps the bank, the bottom yeah. line of the bank is, is good. Let's give them money and no financial literacy, by the way, exactly. at the same time. At the same time, right? Yep. And so I look at this and I think it is it is just yet again a consequence-less um, action on the part of the GOP to victimize a class of people who are most in need of help mm-hmm. while simultaneously saying nothing or not objecting to it when it happens to a class of people who don't need the help. No, I think you're right. I mean, there's this hypocrisy in that. There's also, you know, a failure to see uh, public education as a public good rather than a private good. In other words, we have an interest in a nation. Our, we have an economic interest in having... Um, large percentages of our populations educated to high enough levels that they can participate fully in a high-skill, high-knowledge economy. And we're failing to do that. And other nations are incentivized. They're reducing the cost of higher education. They're creating incentives for students to go forward or, or to do it for almost free in some countries because they think this is how our country will become competitive in the international right. economy. We're speaking with uh, former Secretary of Education, Paul Revel. Paul, we know we're in trouble with our students uh, moving down to to elementary all the way up through high school and what has happened during the pandemic and, and the learning that didn't happen and how far behind kids are. But now we're learning that the there's a sense that parents are kind of indifferent to what's happened and, and how far behind kids are. What does this mean? Well, you know, the, the, the problem is that there's been this uh, undeniably a very significant drop in, in student achievement and student learning loss that happened over this period of time. Uh, it's, it's not happened universally across the board. We can see that it's exacerbated already existing achievement gaps. Those who were struggling under the existing system pre-COVID struggled even more during COVID for a variety of reasons, lack of access to educational opportunity by contrast with some of their more affluent peers who had full access and uh, the support of two professional parents at home and every kind of enrichment that one would imagine and other children at the opposite end of the income spectrum who uh, you know, were struggling with housing, were struggling with nutrition, to say nothing of Internet connectivity and so on and so forth. So you've got now enormous differences. Um, the, the question is, where's our sense of urgency about this? It captures certain headlines. You know, when, when the NAEP scores came out a few weeks ago in Massachusetts, we saw that we weren't doing as well as we had in the past. But if you look that's been going on for a while. We've plateaued for a while. We've had these achievement gaps. 
And so um, I think that the, there's some emerging evidence now that parents are not so aware themselves of their own children's learning loss. And uh, uh, they're not – because they're not readily available standardized test scores. You know, we hear a lot of talk these days about abolishing testing. But this is one instance in which uh, those kinds of test scores would be useful individually to parents to understand that while your child may be getting an A or a B in school right now in terms of the work that they're currently doing that has been adjusted to the reduced level – um, be, that, uh, you know, because they're behind uh, chronologically in terms of where they should be, um, that, that um, you know, parents think, well, okay, it's okay. He's getting a B. We don't need to do anything extra. We don't need to send him to summer school or do some extraordinary tutoring or things of this nature. So it means that educators and pol- education leaders and policymakers are not necessarily being pressed by popular opinion to do things about this. And as a result, I mean, we were talking uh, recently about, um, and there have been a, a series of articles in The Globe, which I think have well documented both this learning loss and the fact that um, there isn't a clear sense of urgency about what to do. We hear a lot of talk about high dosage tutoring and things of that nature, but it's not being fully implemented. And when it is, it doesn't really look like high dosage in a lot of places. We're not doing the extraordinary steps you might take. I mean, if you if you see that children are behind by a half a year or a year's worth of work, you would do things to make sure that they have the additional quantity of learning time that they need. That might mean all summer. It might mean vacation breaks. It might mean restructuring our whole way of working so that we meet children where they are and give them what they need as opposed to assuming everybody had the same COVID experience and treating everybody the same afterwards. But that would be very inconvenient for adults. We'd look more like a medical system, you know, where you you adapt to and you customize to meet the need of an individual that brings in a particular diagnosis and you structure your system of interventions uh, to meet that need. We don't do that in education. We batch process. We're a factory model. But we, we don't even get to the point of being able to do that until we acknowledge that uh, for schools and for teachers, and I'm not I'm not slamming teachers in any way, but for schools and for teachers, they're de-incentivized to communicate that level of um, specificity and detail in need. There's a disincentive to do it because schools are judged by their test scores and schools are judged by how well their their students do. There's a lot less teacher-student engagement. Um, online learning certainly contributed uh, probably even further to that. But in the midst of everything that they're, that they're doing, the, the sort of if you if, if teachers in schools were to do that, was to, would to step up that level of engagement where the burden was then put on parents or the obligation to, to look at that. What would that mean for them? What would that mean well, for the way I, they progress as, as schools, uh, as individual schools and teachers? Well, I mean, sort of paradoxically relative to your comment, I think it would result in improved student performance. In other words, if you enlist parents as the, the the first, the primary, the most powerful educators of students as partners in the education process, supporting and working in conjunction with teachers, uh, I think you've got a much better chance that students are going to um, to learn at higher levels that are going to progress more rapidly. And I think it's it's not so much the the testing scheme that that. Um, uh, 
controls whether or not schools are engaged with parents. I think they just haven't been incentivized to do it. Teachers have their hands full. We've got very tight contracts. We've got you know, severe limits on time. We don't hold schools accountable for interacting with parents. I mean, I think the antidote to what you know, this lack of urgency about learning loss among the general public is for teachers and parents to be sitting down one-on-one talking in depth about what's going on with a particular student. Without blame, because I think that's what teachers and schools worry about, is if you say my kid isn't doing as well, that's your fault and that's your problem. Right. No, absolutely. But I think now we're in a situation where we we all have this external problem that we can point to. Well, we had COVID, but what are we going to do? In other words, in a partnership, you know, you, you and I, we were Jared's parents, Uh, or or I was a teacher and you were the parent, we would sit down and say, okay, what does he need? What can you do to help him? What am I going to do in school? And how is that going to help him move along? But we haven't, we haven't structured schools or teachers jobs in a way to um, kind of uh, build that sort of partnership. And so parents, parent engagement is often an afterthought in public schools. In some schools, it's considered a nuisance. Uh, but it really, I mean, it takes time. You've got to be on the phone with parents. It isn't just have a parent meeting twice a year and see who shows up. And a lot of your parents are working or in Boston, they don't even live in the same neighborhood, so they're not going to show up. But it's actively outreaching and developing this partnership with parents. And some schools, in fairness, had to do that during the pandemic, but kids were, were falling off the grid altogether. They didn't know where they were. So schools started picking up the phone and calling parents and saying, you know, where is she and what's happening with her and so on and so forth. And um, I, I think we, should, we just need to grow that kind of uh, set of relationships more aggressively than we have in the past. Well, let's move to an arena where there has been active engagement, and that's in Boston, where voters said they wanted to return to a time, uh, to, to a, a method where there would be a, 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 not a, a, a school committee not appointed by the mayor, as is the case in Boston currently, the only municipality, by the way, in Massachusetts where that's the the case. Voters said that they wanted elected school committee members. Mayor Wu, when she was elected and campaigning, said she wanted to go back to elected school committee members. A year later, that hasn't happened. Why not? Right. Well, you know, I can't explain why it hasn't happened so much as I I do have a point of view on this. And I'm I I worry, frankly, uh, that getting embroiled in a change of governance is a very sort of top level kinds of kind of conversation here. And what we need right now in light of these learning losses that we've just been talking about is strategy on the ground to improve student learning. I worry that this will be a, an enormous distraction and suck up all the oxygen over the next period just of time. changing the method or well, having elected just, members? Well, f- first of all, just sort of reopening this as a, as a public policy debate. It, it's going to consume – I mean a lot of the focus of our energy – Uh, kind of in the political sphere is going to go, not so much on the urgency to, you know, with a new mayor and with a new superintendent to let them bear down and come up with a set of strategies to close learning gaps and and make this system work at higher levels than it has in the past. I understand the voter frustration and, you know, it's, uh, but there's there's a little bit of, uh, I think, wishful thinking. If you go back to the elected school board, uh, it was the source of all kinds of dysfunction. Voter turnout was extraordinarily low. Representation was not high. 
uh, budget deficits were regularly run. Racist behavior was common in the old school board. I mean, the idea that going back to a school board is going back to some halcyon days where everything went well, uh, I, I just think is naive. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that's going to solve the problem. And furthermore, you know, the kinds of things that are being contemplated, uh, having, uh, you know, a, a, an overwhelming majority of the um, school committee uh, elected by school district means you then have people uh, focused on their individual geography, their individual neighborhood, as opposed to the system as a whole. And we've got systemic problems. I mean, you look at the school transportation problem, and and the mayor, you know, is attempting to work on school building and Green New Deal. But, uh, you know, we just reading in, in, in other places about black parents leaving the Boston yeah. public schools, and a lot of them are leaving, you know, for the same reasons that a lot of other parents have left the school system in the past. I can't, I can't be guaranteed when I buy a house or rent an apartment that I have a particular school to go to. I have to put my child in a lottery, and that lottery might mean that they're going to be on the bus for an hour and a half each way going to school in a different neighborhood. And whereas if I go to a suburb, I will know if I buy my house here, I will have a school to go to there. So we need to we need to rethink the school transportation system. We spend an extraordinary amount on on busing in, in the Boston public schools. And that's a citywide concern. It involves our building program. It involves having fair access in every neighborhood to good schools, which we don't have right now. But we have a game of musical chairs going on where we bus people all around the city at enormous expense in money, in the environment, in traffic congestion, and in disruption of neighborhoods and, and disconnection. And that's the kind of issue that I would love to see our our public policy energy go toward at the moment. But, you know, there's been – there was a referendum and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the city council is going to come up with a measure and uh, that will put it on the mayor's desk and she'll have to make a choice. Uh, I think it's natural that a mayor would want to hold on to uh, – because I think she has a vision. She's a parent. She has a vision that the schools could be better and uh, she's going to try and push uh, in, in, in the best way that she can to make that happen. Well, you know, speaking of this sort of exodus, 15,000 kids over the last uh, – black children over the last 20 years – uh, Michael Curry was on with Jim and Marjorie earlier this week, and he was talking about the mass exodus of, of black students from Boston schools. Take a listen to what he had to say. Okay. Anytime that you have a program, a system um, that hasn't worked uh, effectively, uh, disruption and blowing it up actually makes sense, even though I think we are always cautious about that. Um, but we have to do something different. So we only have, we have like two, 10 seconds, but, but what's your 10 second reaction to what Michael Curry said? I'm sorry. He, he couldn't hear, he unfortunately, but he, my... he was basically saying, um, he said, anytime you have a program, a system that hasn't worked effectively, disruption and blowing it up actually makes sense, even though we're always cautious about that, but we have to do something different. That was his take um, as we're losing so many students of color in the city right now. So was he talking about the governance system or is he talking about the strategy and day-to-day and -day approach of education in Boston? I think he was probably talking about both, but the, the need to do something so drastically different that it actually has an impact. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's... And you only have 10 seconds. <laughs> right. Just, yeah. right. I'll make it easy for when, you. When you have a new leader coming in, like uh, school superintendent Mary Skipper, um, that's the brief that she's got. That's what she's promised to do. That's what the mayor has promised to do. I think we should give them a chance. All right. All Thank right. you so we, much, Paul Revel. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank we've you for having me with, on. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Paul Revel. He's the, secretary of, he's the former Secretary of Education here in the Commonwealth, and nowadays he's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs 
the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Lynn Sachs, is Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a practical guide for school and community leaders. After a quick break, lots of people, for lots of people, the arrival of vaccines meant the return to the arts. Concerts, theater, movies for many, but not for all. The folks at Arts Boston have been tracking data on the financial health of audiences and venues. We're going to talk to Executive Director Katherine Peterson and Kathy Carr Kelly from the Central Square Theater. That's after a quick break. Stay with us. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. back to Boston Public Radio. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library. I'm Jared Bowen here with Andrea Cabral. So when COVID first hit, there was a tremendous uncertainty about how artists and the folks who bring us the arts would make it through. Luckily for all of us, most venues are still standing today, thanks in large part to things like PPP loans, generous donations, and the ingenuity of artists and artist groups Two of them are with us now. And while things are looking up, when you compare where we are now to, say, June of 2020, the reality is that a lot of theater groups, music venues, and artists still need our help to make it through. I've talked a lot about this in all of my appearances over the last couple of years, seeing audience attendance down. So here in Studio 3, to expand on some pretty insightful research into this, we've got Catherine Peterson, Executive Director for Arts Boston. Also here with us is Kathy Carr-Kelly. She's Executive Director for Central Square Theater. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Jared. Good to see you, Andrea. It's very nice to meet both of you. I've actually been really looking forward to this segment because as Jared and I were speaking, we've been speaking about this and and, uh, uh, my worry about getting people back into these venues to to look at this amazingly creative content. Um, I've been wondering for a long time exactly what was going to be the post-pandemic scenario for this. So tell us a little bit about... Um, this sort of deep dive that this uh, this uh, research went into, um, and what you've what you're taking from it, and and how you're going to uh, capitalize on that information. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, Catherine. Great, thanks. Um, at Arts Boston, which is a nonprofit that works with 150 different dance, music, theater museums in Greater Boston, uh, we have been looking at the impact that having our venues shut for live performances for 18 months has been having on uh, the folks who have been loyal attendees. And so we did a a year-and-a-half study on what people were thinking in terms of how they wanted to be engaged while venues were shut and also what it would take to enable them to come back and feel safe. And out of that research... Um, we found that between 15 and 20 percent of folks really weren't ready to come back um, over a year ago when the doors did open. And so we wanted to dig in now that we've had a full season with, and I'm using air quotes, doors being open, uh, looking at what the state was with the Uh, theaters and museums and uh, music and dance organizations and how they were dealing with this and what the state of audiences is. And and before we bring you in, Kathy, what you're seeing within Central Square Theater, 
I mean, Catherine, is it fair to say it's it's kind of grim? I mean, I, I hate to say this. I I want to keep the arts as front and center as possible, but we know that audiences are having trouble coming back. I think we need to be honest about the fact that it is a really challenging time right now. And I think if we put it into context, the fact that when things opened up last year, it was not smooth sailing. Um, arts organizations had to deal with uh, both the Delta and the Omicron virus. And I remember this time last year, if you cast your mind back, we were looking forward to a really good holiday season. And one show after another had to close down for significant performances because of not what was happening with audiences, but what was happening with the performers. So last year was really tough. And so the recovery we had been looking for last year, where we knew there were going to be 15 to 20 percent down, it's actually been more like 25 to 40 percent for many organizations. So, Kathy, I mean, I think about this and we just look at what happened in our own lives. Our behavior changed. We got very used to watching things at home. People moved away. People spent more time with their families. They went out less. So what are you seeing with all of those behavioral changes? What impact is that having on Central Square Theater? Yes, we're definitely seeing that. I mean, we're down... We're, we consider ourselves lucky that we're down about 20%. We definitely see this season as the transition season. Last season was a huge challenge. I don't think any of us made a full a full year with all of our shows. We we just didn't. Um, that's changed, and and now we're you know we're back swinging the bat at it. Um, I think I think also for us having the knowledge that we had, thanks to Arts Boston and Catherine, uh, creating understanding the two things that are really important to audiences today: trust and perception. Do, we, do they trust us, and do we understand how, they, how safe they perceive they need to be? And those are things that are changing all the time. So while we were in the middle of the study, it was great that we had the information to figure out, um, okay, people feel this way now. So now we, have, we feel that we've gained trust. I mean, theaters and music and dance came out together last year and said, here are the things we're going to implement. For theater especially, we did it uh, in a unified way, which was huge. Um, so now, now the protections that we offer are more based, are less unified, but more based on what we know of our audience. You know, we're, we have a large, uh, science audience where Central Square Theater is right in between MIT and Harvard and works closely with MIT. So the science is being followed really carefully by a lot of people who see our work. So for our show, The Chinese Lady Now, we're still masking, um, you know, all of our companies are 100% vaccinated. So, but but that's the experience for us. That may not be the experience, uh, you know, across the river for the lyric or whoever. So it's it's very. Uh, I think important things are collaboration and connection, uh, which I can talk more about. Sort of now we have to gain new audiences, uh, and it's more urgent than it's ever been before. But it's so different for smaller venues, places that are considered to be community venues, neighborhood venues, or slightly larger than that, and large arenas which use the show itself to get people into the seats. So, the, so I want to ask you both about this, but I'll start, I'll start with you, Kathy, about how Central Square Theater communicates with its audience to build that trust, which is more elusive for larger venues. So how do you do it? How do you do it for a place like Central Square Theater? Right. Well, it's constant communication. So you're communicating a lot. Our front of house are do a lot more than front of house and box office. They are contacting 
uh, guests for many, many different things. Um, we noticed in the very beginning when we came back last year, people were so happy just to talk. I mean, we would call to say, we want you to know we're doing this this year. We're hoping you feel comfortable. These are what we're, this is what we're putting into place. And people were like, oh, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so happy you're coming back. I might not be ready, but I'm happy I've heard from you. So being transparent and clear through the whole, uh, what we hope are the worst years of COVID, uh, has been critical in terms of trust. Also, the way that we do our work, you know, we have... Um, We've always been a social justice theater. That's we've centered social justice for fifty years now. So, so for us, when we're doing a show like, for example, the Chinese Lady, we are collaborating and partnering with other organizations. So, Chuang Stage, which is um, the first Mandarin bilingual bicultural theater, we're working with them. They're much younger. Um, they have a very different audience than what we have. We're captioning for those people too. So we're also working with a Cambridge Chinese chorus. So we're working with people who the story is important to. Those are two things. Those are new audiences uh, and it's building trust and building a stakeholdership that's more than just, I'm coming to see this play. You feel like you have a, you know, you have a piece in it. It's important to you. So can you address those challenges in bigger for bigger venues that same way, or do you have to find another way to get at it? I think that I think that for larger organizations, um, for example, uh, Broadway in Boston and the Emerson Colonial, uh, or the Boston Symphony, I think it's all about communication and it's all about clarity and making sure that people aren't surprised and making sure that front of house, uh, which Kathy referenced, is is really there to. Uh, both answers, answer questions, but also to make sure that everyone is comfortable. So there is work that can be done at a larger venue. Uh, it takes constant vigilance and uh, real commitment to it. So, Catherine, I want to ask, too, what you found in the, in the survey, uh, because, again, we're talking about the state of the arts here. We want to remind people, if they feel comfortable, why it's so important to go and support the arts right now and go back and be present and attend shows and go to the museums. So not only are they dealing with this loss in people coming into their venues and institutions and buildings, but revenue is down. So that means budgets are down, which means it's harder to pay people. People left the industry. It's something we also saw, especially when you didn't have a stable job all of a sudden because it went away for a year or more. And if theaters couldn't necessarily pay or other institutions couldn't pay, they were furloughed. They took other jobs, technology, whatever. I heard all manner of things. So if they're dealing with all of these infrastructure issues and all these staffing issues and HR issues, how is what's the impact of that on the art situation right now? Right now it's huge, Jared. Um, absolutely everything you said in terms of the attrition of staff. Uh, there are large organizations where literally 50% of their staff are new from where it was in March of 2020. And the impact that has in terms of the loss of institutional knowledge and the pressure it puts on the folks who did stay uh, and the amount of time it takes to onboard people is, is significant. So it's going to take longer. And also, a lot of folks haven't restaffed to the level that they were before. So it means that not only do we have the challenge of not going back to what we were before, because there were huge challenges for the arts community um, before March um, 2020. We want to come back to a new, um, a new way of doing things that's better than we were before. And that takes the ability to take a deep breath, 
to collaborate, to really think about things and not just to go show by show, making sure the audience gets in safely and your performers are safe. So there are big challenges here, but there are also big opportunities. And Kathy referenced... Oh, I'm sorry, Kathy. Did you want to... Oh, I was just going to say, and if I can, this this is the giving season. (laughs) So I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know... This is annual appeal time for theaters large and small, uh, music groups, dance groups. Now is the time. I mean, donors, individual donors, as well as uh, federal government and foundations have helped get us to where we are now today, that we're even back up and producing again. And we see it as a three-year challenge, and we see this is year one. So we count on individuals. We count on you both. This is the first year in our appeal. We actually say, you know, of course – um, we appreciate your financial support dearly and bring people to the theater with you. Well, that's a great segue because that's exactly what I was going to ask about. You referenced uh, the play The Chinese Lady, and we'll make sure that people know you know, uh, when and, when and uh, how, how frequently they can see it. Um, but you talked about um, as part of, of the production of the play, or the execution of the play, engaging community groups, which makes people understand, people who would have an interest in it, people who want to come and see uh, themselves reflected on that stage or their, their, some of their history or some of their heritage reflected on that stage, brings them into the theater. And one of the findings of this study was that uh, audiences are generally uh, 80% and upwards, they're 80% white. And it begs the question, it can't be that that's the percentage of people uh, or the demographic of people in the population who enjoy theater and music and dance, it begs the question, why, how to get those audiences in and, and why that isn't um, happening. And of course, whenever there's a f- severe financial challenge, that causes people to think critically about things like that. So can you both talk about, and, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the Chinese lady, we'll come back to you, but I'll uh, start with Catherine, talking about what these, some of these larger venues, especially, which have lost the most money, are doing to, um, to enlarge their audience. Uh, absolutely. And I would, I'm going to push back just a little bit on the sure. larger venues because those are the venues that really made out with, um, uh, government uh, funding, both PPP and also the shuttered venue money. Right. And so I worry particularly for the smaller guys, um, who don't have the individual giving, uh, capacity to reach out to folks in the same way that um, the larger folks do. So we want everyone to be okay, but let's, let's put a little extra in for the smaller guys. That said, I think it's, it's, it's working not only on the kind of relationship building and ongoing outreach that an organization like Central Square has been doing for 50 years, I think it is also about making sure that we are looking at who our staff are, who our boards are, who our leadership are. And if we want to have, if we want to change the metric of the fact that right now around 89% of audiences in Boston for the arts are white, we need to not just think about who's on stage and whose work we're performing. We need to think about who's making those decisions and who holds the power in the boardroom. So there's a great opportunity to move ahead with that. And something to make this more democratic, you talk about in the report, is, uh, and I love when I see this, 
the pay what you can method um, for audiences. So it makes it more democratic and it's a more comfortable system to come in and pay what you feel comfortable with. Just like I always appreciate and love to tout any museum that has free admission because before I retire, I would love to see every museum in this region be free of charge. Um, Kathy's giving me the thumbs up. I don't know if I've just thrown you under the bus because we're on radio, but I'm calling that out there. But how does that work? Is it is it a practical model? Is it, it looks good on paper, pay what you can, but can it be implemented? Uh, it's hard. I think pay what you can is hard. We also, we did, um, over the last few years, uh, we've done uh, pay it forward. So there's pay what you can, and then there's also pay what pay it forward, which basically says, would you rather be a philanthropist than a ticket buyer? Because oh, you can. So if you can afford, if you can afford more, then pay more, because that's going to help subsidize someone who can't. So, and But that's tricky. So we've done that for a few years. We're still doing it. It is a little tricky. I have to say, I look, I look across the pond to England and, and to the vibrant theater scene in London, and they are supported by their government in a huge way. Tickets are uh, cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I go over there, and I can see theater every day cheaply. Uh, and we should point out here, not supported in a major way. No, right. So by that, the government. Right. There's, I don't think there's really any way around that anymore. And, and COVID has unfortunately uh, pushed that even harder that that um, in order to make in order to get rid of the barriers, some of them are money. I mean, the barriers to entry aren't all financial. Right. Some of them absolutely are. But when you were talking about like why is the audience so white, those barriers to entry are things like are you a welcoming theater? Who is your theater? As Catherine said, are they uh, are they centering people other than white people and white stories? Who's who? Who do they think needs to tell those stories? For us, if we're telling a story like the Chinese lady. We know that we need to bring in and collaborate with uh, AAPI folks, so uh, folks who, who are uh, Asian uh, Pacific Islanders who can speak to this because it's not our story to tell on our own. And that, so that, that's a big thing and your organization itself. When you walk into Central Square Theater, you want to see people who look like you. So you're not going to see an all-white staff um, because we're not <laughs> – uh, which is a long process, too. There's a long process. And with the financial uh, issues that Jared was talking about, yes, yes, that's all challenging. Um, I think the government could do a lot to help with that. I think that's the last I'll say about that piece. Um, I agree completely with all I do. I just agree completely with all of that. I also think that, um, you know, when I read the synopsis of The Chinese Lady, and I thought, but this is a story that resonates with anyone who has been oppressed or, or exploited mm. and helping people to understand that even a story that they may think of as not related to their cultural background or doesn't resonate with their experience, it, most writers write about mm. something that touches something universal. It is, it is true that seeing yourself reflected on stage makes a big difference, but there is usually a theme or a plot line that resonates with more people and getting people to understand that as the value of the art um, is the value of buying that ticket, I think is great. The other thing is, and I'm ashamed to say that I ultimately didn't do it, I told Jared this morning that I had intended to buy season tickets to the Huntington even though I had no intention of actually getting there because I was still COVID afraid, but I wanted to do it to support it. And I do think that if you ask people, individual people, to buy season tickets that they will not use or to make a donation, they will do it. I would do it. 
Um, and I do think government should shame on government for not being as nearly as involved in this as they should be. So, and I just took up a bunch of time. Really <laughs> and I just want to take the last two minutes we have to, to give, just leave on a positive note. Um, Catherine Peterson, just tell us what we can. This is a rich time for the arts in Boston, meaning December in the greater Boston area. How much is there for people to see right now? There is something for everybody. And what's great is that. People, when when I go to performances, and I'm sure it's the same experience for you, people are so happy to be there. They really are. And right now we have everything from Urban Nutcracker at the Schubert Theater. We have Black Nativity, which is uh, at the Paramount. Um, we have the Boston Pops. We have Revels um, at Sanders Theater. There is so much in terms of music and dance and theater. And, of course, Chinese Lady uh, at Central Square. And so, really, um, I invite people to check out um, our calendar at archboston.org. And we have... a. a discount ticket program called Bostix, which for 50 years has made it much more affordable to enjoy more performances and bring more people to them. And Kathy, we'll give you the last word, 20 seconds. We've been talking a lot about the Chinese Lady, which runs until December 11th. What is it? Exactly. Chinese Lady, a story of the imagined story of Afang Moi, who was brought to America at 14. Uh, she was uh, sold into servitude for what was supposed to be two years, to be on dis- on public display. So it is, this, it is the imagined story of her and, uh, and her male counterpart. Uh, it's humorous. It's uh, telling. The actors are amazing. Here till December 11th, uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Also, just quickly want to mention uh, work that we're doing with the new MIT Museum. If you haven't been over there, uh, I've get there. I've talked a lot about that place, yes. Oh, good. Get there. Monday night, Two Degrees by Tara Palmquist is a stage reading uh, of a play about climate change that we're working and collaborating with the museum on. Support the arts. It'll yes. make you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Thank you both. It was a pleasure to meet both of you. Nice to meet Thank you. you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Katherine Peterson, Executive Director for Arts Boston, and Kathy Carr-Kelly. She's Executive Director of the Central Square Theater. Thank you both for coming in. Here's a quick break, and then we're going to have our new film critic in town, a gentleman by the name of Odie Henderson. He's going to join us. Don't go away. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen, joined by Andrea Cabral. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They will be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library. And if you join them at the BPL, you can enter a special raffle. They are running to win one of three smug mugs that Jim's had rolling around in his trunk of his car. But we (laughs) tucked them up for this really special raffle. Maybe they'll even sign them. 
uh, for you. So we are joined in studio. We're both very excited about this by Odie Henderson. Odie is a film critic for the Boston Globe, a much anticipated arrival and a much needed voice in this town for film. It is great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am really excited about this. I wanted to interview you after I read the Globe's piece introducing you as Boston's newest film critic, in part because of the things that you say in the piece that you really like. Particularly, it wasn't just the black exploitation stuff. Um, uh, it wasn't just trash art, or or <laughs> it was Ennio Morricone. Oh yeah, I love those scores. My mom loves westerns. I don't, but I've seen every western under the sun because my mom made me watch them. We only had one television, so those scores. They when you write, if you listen to music when you write, sometimes you need something to motivate you, and they always do. And they're so weird. And that's what makes them so wonderful. The sounds you hear with these random things that work so well together. He recently score. died. Ennio Morricone recently died. And he was, a, you know, for people who don't know, he was a composer. But he, and he, he probably gained, he's famous for a lot of compositions, but gained uh, fame for um, the score to The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, which most people know as the mo- the song in the Modelo beer commercial. <laughs> it's called The Ecstasy of Gold. Right. But Ennio Morricone, I mean, he was a great composer, and he would compose for these spaghetti westerns that lifted them to sort of an almost operatic kind of a thing. You'd have, you know, grizzled old Eli Wallach in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly with the score that actually you made you feel like you were almost watching opera. He was he was a he was a genius. Right. And Leone influenced since we're talking a little bit about black exploitation, he influenced other people. He influenced Isaac Hayes. If you listen to Walk on By on, on the Hot Butter Soul album, you get the full introduction of that that they use in Dead Presidents. Isaac Hayes was compelled to write that opening for Walk on By, which Bacharach didn't write. After he saw uh Once Upon a Time in the West and saw Henry Fonda shoot the kid. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> he was inspired to write that. And they sync it up. Uh, uh, Elvis Mitchell's movie, Is That Black Enough For You? He syncs up that music to the Spaghetti Western. And it's fascinating because Isaac Hayes went to Italy and he made a couple of these movies. He scored a couple of these movies. You know, the uh, My Mind's Playing Tricks on You, this, the Ghetto Boys song, samples one of his compositions for the Italian movies that he made. So Leone was a big... Uh, you know, influence on musicians apparently, including Murakami. It's well, a, it, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just speaking of influence, let's let's back this up a little bit. And where has your who is your influence for film in your life that you have this passion and uh, that you have landed as the crit, film critic for the for the Boston Globe? It must be lifelong, I would imagine. Well, um, this is funny because my mom loves movies and I would watch movies in the house but we didn't have you know Nintendo didn't exist back then so <laughs> you either went outside when the street lights came on you came in that's right or you stayed home and watched television I was kind of a weak kid a sickly kid so you know a lot of times I was just in the house and I'd watch these movies and they'd be on I mean the best education I got was from independent television when I was a kid in New York because they would just show anything you know it, you didn't have a choice and so you'd watch Jimmy Cagney one minute, you watch Laurel and Hardy the next minute. And I grew to love these kind of things, just watching, tell me a story and you, you own me. I will be enraptured and, and pay attention to you. And so I think that's why. Um, the funny thing about being a writer and being in this particular space here is the reason why I became a writer, I wanted to be a writer since I was six years old. 
I wanted to have a column in a paper like Jimmy Breslin. Gene and Roger, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, made me want to be a film critic. There was a show that you guys did, well, not the radio, but GBH did, called Zoom. Yes, yeah. Right. And I watched Zoom as a kid, and if you remember, you could send them your stories, and they would read them on the air. And I wanted to do this. And I wrote a story and sent it to Zoom, Box 350, Boston, Mass, 02134. (laughs) And they did not read my story, but it didn't matter because I was hooked. I wanted to write. So I owe my career at the Boston Globe and every place else to WGBH. So thank you. As do we all, I would like to say. (laughs) I owe everything I have to GBH as well. But, you know, Siskel and Ebert, one of the things that I think made them so successful was their accessibility. Um, and you ended up working with Roger Ebert. Right. I mean, uh, first of all, how did you get from wherever you were before that happened to working with Roger Ebert? And then how was it working with Roger? Well, you know, I, I'm a, I was a techie. I wrote code for 35 years. In fact, I retired, quote unquote, from tech in May of this year. And I got this job in October. But I wrote on the side. I was a freelance critic. And I wrote on the side. And um, Jim Emerson, who had a blog called Scanners on Roger's old website and was Roger's editor, if I'm not mistaken, for a time, he liked my work and he started to promote it on his blog and Roger got wind of it and started reading it and then Roger contacted me and asked if I wanted to write for the site and I'm as, as Roger being my idol, um, it was stunning to, to want to even have me on his site and I, I was on his site for 11 years. I'm very proud of all the work that I did. The fact that the reviews that I've written is over 400 of them are in the same place where all 46 years of Roger's career is. And Roger was a wonderful mentor. He gave me the best advice I ever got as a writer. And I wrote my first piece for him, and it took me nine hours, which is unprecedented, because I was so worried he would hate what I wrote. And after I submitted it and he published it, I wrote him and I said, listen, I can't do this again. I can't suffer. Just tell me what you want me to write, and I'll, how you want me to write, and I'll write the way you want me to write. And he wrote back and he said, I want you to write like Odie Henderson. And that's probably the best advice I ever got as a writer. So he was a very giving mentor and, and very funny. <laughs> and so that meant, ostensibly, find your conviction. And did you find it right away? Well, you know, some people say I have a voice. I don't know whether that's true or not, but he just told me to sound like me. And I think I do. You write, uh, when I read your reviews or read your writing, I, you write like you're talking to me. Yeah. Just to me. Yeah. And so did yeah. Roger. Yeah. Roger wrote like you were in the room with Roger Ebert and that was it. And knowing, having been in the room with Roger Ebert in person or in email, it, it doesn't change. He sounds like he does in print. Like he's talking just to you and nobody else in the world matters. And I wanted to emulate that as best I could. I'm really curious, especially as you talk about stories resonating with you, what the place of film has had in your life, uh, which is often very emotional and and things that aren't so palpable because of the way they touch us or the time in which they touch us right. and what's happening in our own lives. I do feel a lot of people in your position will talk about film, I'm raising my hand, up here, you mm-hmm. know, and at an academic level. And, and it's not, it doesn't have the emotion that you carry into it. So that's a long way of asking how you see film and what it's meant to you. Well, I... I always found English class to be boring uh, when they would go through and make us explain, have to explain these explanations of stories that I didn't necessarily agree with what the explanation was. 
And so I didn't want to be scholarly. I mean, I wanted to be loose. I wanted to, you know, I can't do it at the Globe, but I, I cuss in my reviews, but not at the Globe. But <laughs> I wanted to make it so that when you read me, it wasn't like you were in class and it was a nun with a ruler was going to hit you. I wanted you to kind of, like you said, like I was talking to you. And for me, the emotional part of, of, of watching films or writing about them is you, I think film is meant to do that. Art is meant to provoke or to inspire a reaction. And when it doesn't, it's bad. It's the worst part of a kind of art. And so you go in and you submit. I mean, I, I think a lot of what we were told as critics in general, but that Roger kind of disavow, you know, disabused me of the notion was that I have to go in and be completely subjective about it. And that does not exist because we can watch the same movie. We can all love it equally as much. But we're going to see three different things. And I feel like I'm seeing this and there aren't that many when critics of color or people in, in the industry. So I feel like I should speak to you in my voice and not try to sound like someone else because I'm a really bad liar. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the admission. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about some of the things that you that you do like. And you've had some recent um, reviews. You've seen a few things that I think uh, have really sort of um, you found to be a good production value, great story, very well told. One of them is uh, Strange World. Tell us a little bit. Of, uh, tell us a little bit about that. You know, Disney did Strange World dirty, uh, and I'm going to say this on the air. Sorry, Disney. <laughs> They're already mad at me, but anyway, I think they can handle it. <laughs> I didn't know what Strange World was. When I got the assignment to do it, I'm like, what is this? And Disney didn't promote this at all. And it turns out to be a fun movie. It's, again, it's not subtle about its environmental message, but it's fun to look at, especially if you partake. Uh, (laughs) But I had a good time watching it, and it was interesting in that for a change, rather than throw a couple of breadcrumbs at the LGBT people, they actually had a character who was gay the whole movie. And it was interesting. It's, it's a take on Fantastic Voyage. It's a multiracial cast. Well, yes. and, and let me stop and we'll have you talk about it on the other side. But here's a clip from D- Disney's animated movie Strange World about a legendary family of explorers. Meridian? What are you doing down here? I've been trying to flag you down for the last four hours. Our son is on your ship. What did she just say? Honey, what are you saying? What is she saying? She said your son is on our ship. Hey, Mom. Ethan? Oh, hey, Dad. Oh, you brought the dog? <laughs> it sounds so sweet, too. Yeah, and it's, it's Gabrielle Union is his mother, and she's in another movie where she has a completely different reaction to her gay kid, The Inspection. Um, it's very, the vocal talents, really, Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid, uh, Jabuki Young-White, who plays the young uh, Ethan, the young teenager, uh, Lucy Liu is in it. Um, it's a good movie. It's fun. And I thought it would be a good movie to take your kids to because it's colorful. Even little kids that don't understand the message would kind of jones on the colors. And again, if you partake, this is a good movie for you. Um, <laughs> and it lost like $120 million. They didn't, you're right. They didn't promote it at all. It kind of it reminds me of Jingle Jangle and uh, the blues one, which I absolutely love. And now I can't think of the name of it. Um, uh, they were Pixar. Both of those, I think, were Soul. Thank Soul. you. Soul, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they were both great. And that's and that's a shame because this is exactly the kind of movie that that today's families and others want to see. Right. 
Well, and let's talk about a movie that did not lose a lot of money, and that would be Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, and people came in at a couple different levels on this. Really curious, one, how the death of Chadwick Boseman would be dealt with and whether it was right to even go on with the series. Before we ask you about that, here's a clip of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So, how do you make a movie in the DC universe that's a memorial as well as an action movie? Uh, it's, it's Marvel, but the, I mean the Marvel universe. I'm sorry. Yeah, those those uh, comic book fans no, come that after you now. That was a huge mistake. It's it's the Marvel universe. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. Uh, Angela Bassett's very good in this. I mean, like I nominate her people, Oscar people. I was surprised by how melancholy it is. I, I don't think it completely works. I'm glad they didn't ca- recast Chadwick Boseman. I'm glad they decided to take a look at what grief is like, what it's like to live with the loss of someone as important or as big as T'Challa, but also if you're his sister. And I think the movie is melancholy all the way through, and I was a little surprised by that. Unfortunately, Disney, again, they're mad at me, they, they kind of chinsed the very cheap kind of CGI, made it very dark. And at points, it was hard to see. It's underwater. You know, as much as I'm not a fan of Avatar, at least you can see underwater in James Cameron's universe. And this movie made, it was a Best Picture nominee. It made all this money. And they could have done a better job of making the CGI lighter than it is. So that was my complaint. And also, I think that the story is fine. I think what made it work for me was the performances and how these people kind of showed their grief, allowed you to show your grief. And it was, for me, especially as, as a black person, I felt that some of the things they did were things that I experienced with loss in my family, how they celebrated, you know, it was almost like the, I said it was like a, a New Orleans parade, you know, that the sequence of them dancing when they're bringing his coffin out. And I appreciated some of those touches that they did. Um, so I give them credit for the rights, Ryan Coogler, obviously, who, who kind of put that in. But, you know, I think Disney could have given them a couple more bucks. <laughs> no, that's and that's it's that's a common complaint. It just is with second films after blockbusters generally. But for something like this, I think it would be it was probably particularly noticeable. Um, so the, we, I want to talk to you. We have a couple of minutes left and I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, there's this, there's a publication called Sight and Sound. It comes out of the UK, and I guess it's got a list of the best movies. It, the act, it won't actually be out until either much later this afternoon. Or, I don't know. Well, they, they've already it. announced it in if you were there alive because I was invited. Uh, but at two o'clock Eastern time, they will announce the they'll put a list out of the top 100 movies. Most people are concerned with the of top all time 10, of all time, voted on by over 1,600 critics and. Uh, directors and people in the industry and you were one of them i was one of them so i was one of the people who voted i can't tell you what i voted for because before two o'clock i'm not supposed to say anything but they've already it. announced it <laughs> well in london they announced it yeah but you know in a very proper british gentleman might knock on this door if i say something he won't be so proper when he gets in here but the, this is the list for people that don't know if you ever heard that citizen kane was the greatest movie of all time the reason why people said that was because of this list which started in 1952 
And Citizen Kane wasn't the number one movie. It was Bicycle Thieves. But from 62 to 2012, Citizen Kane was the number one movie of all time. It's a 10-year poll, so every 10 years they take this. This is the 70th anniversary of the poll. In 2012, Citizen Kane was unseated by Vertigo. So now in 2022, people are questioning, is Vertigo still the number one movie? Has Citizen Kane retaken it? Or is it something else? And the rumor is that it's something else. And the rumor is that it's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think was number six in 2012. So we don't know yet. Well, in England, they know, but we don't know here yet. And over what period of time is this voting? Because I would imagine, given as we talked about before, the times we're in inform our choices. Well, I mean, I think they, like five minutes ago, when they made everybody vote. <laughs> oh, so it's right up to the, wow. No, it, it's, no, it was probably not that. A couple of months ago. Um, they, they do it toward the end when they finally have to do the poll. They don't just ask you to vote every year. They have other polls that they do. But this is the big one. And so there's a big, like, 300-page magazine that accompanies this from Sight and Sound. And it's a very big deal, you know, in the industry and so on. But All right. what criteria? Well, Nothing makes people angrier than a list. Of course. Because the, ver- the first thing you do is look at it and Why see that your thing is Right, yeah. right, something's missing. But but for the, for the people who are doing the voting, I'm just curious as to what the criteria is for making a decision on the top movies of all all time. Do you know how hard it is to come up with 10 movies? Like, I had, like, 40. And you have to whittle it down to 10. And it's not easy. But if you have time to think about it, you know, it comes up. But, again, it's, like, over 1,600 people. They, wanted, they, they doubled it because they wanted more diversity. There's some talk that maybe a film directed by a woman will be in the top 10. That would be nice. You know? So we don't know. And... We'll see if this right. quote-unquote diversity thing changes. Since you won't tell us, and we have to go, yes or no question, if 2001 does come out on top, would you be happy I'll with be that? mad as hell. Okay. Uh, one, one quick thing. I will tell you my favorite movie of all time. It has nothing to do with sight and sound. Uh, it's all about Eve, but everybody knows that. My favorite movie of all time is all about Eve. All right. Well, I can't wait to be infuriated by this <laughs> list, which apparently is going to happen in about 20 minutes 20 minutes, minutes so. you'll be mad. Get ready. Well, I, I'm glad I'm glad we had you on today. It was a pleasure to meet you, and I hope you come back. Well, thank you so much thank for having you. me. We've been speaking with Odie Henderson, the newly minted film critic for the Boston Globe. After a quick break, inspired by a moment of rage I experienced this morning, what pet peeves drive you to the brink? Is it loudly chewing gum? Is it overzealous whistlers? Jargon users at the office? Or spitters? Guess which one applies to me? We want your thoughts at 877-301-8970. Your biggest pet peeves. Give us a call. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. I'm Jared Bowen, joined by Andrea Cabral. Jim and Marjorie are off today. They'll be back tomorrow and live at the Boston Public Library. And even though, unfortunately, Jane Lynch had to postpone her appearance on the show tomorrow, they will still be there, Jim and Marjorie, and they're going to offer their, in a raffle, three smug mugs tomorrow, if you're there in person, unless Marjorie loses them first, which is a distinct possibility. So we're closing the show uh, now with you opening up the phone and text lines at 877-301-8970. And the conversation we're about to have was inspired by something Andrea saw this morning, which I can't wait to hear more about. (laughs) 
not Prince William and Princess Catherine, something far worse, someone spitting in public the horror. And while... <laughs> Yeah, you just hold up. Let me get through this and then we'll do the deep dive into what you saw. And while not everyone feels the same way about spitting, everyone does have that one pet peeve that just sets them off. We thought it'd be fun to open up the lines and ask, what's yours? Our number is 877-301-8970. Again, 877-301-8970 to call or text. So what happened this morning? No, it's just driving in. And, you know, people do this all the time. People spit in public. I'm sure that those <laughs> same people spit a lot in private. But, you know, the, the feature of a pet peeve is that it is usually something that bothers you that other people have absolutely no reaction to. That's kind of what makes it, it actually makes it more annoying that it annoys you even more. And <laughs> yes, my, that mine so has always been spitting. I, I don't understand why people cannot keep their, their various fluids it to themselves. And it is just something about it that completely skews me out and I can't stand it and I hate to see people doing it. Um, I don't really watch baseball because baseball players spit all the time. That's how much it bothers me to see people spitting. But as I say, it is it, usually for most people, uh, you know, a pet, a pet peeve can be mild. This is a pretty severe one. But it's something that other people can see the exact same thing that you see and have absolutely no reaction to it. I mean, it is such a strange thing. I, I talk a lot about the fact that because running is such a big part of my life. I run and people will spit. And, and I'm thinking that this is horrible, especially post-pandemic, because you've right. just done that. And now what am I running into? But yeah, what just right. came out of you? <laughs> right. It's just such a crass kind of thing. I've just I've just always had this this insane uh, aversion to it. So I just thought on the way in, I wonder, that's how, the wait, weird you, thing that bothers me. What bothers other people? You were sheriff. So yes. how many people did you have arrested for spitting? I Unfortunately, no one. But, you know, if I could, Is it a real no one or just a few? And you, no, I literally, I mean, I had chapter 90 powers of arrest, but I never <laughs> exercised them. But I would say that if, you know, if somebody did come to me and say, um, we're thinking about making something... Um, illegal, you know, what would be your choice? It would be that. Wow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I would have all the spitters rounded up and, you know, have them all arrested. It's just, it, it, I, I fully admit it's a completely sort of irrational um, uh, sort of pet peeve, but it, but it just drives me nuts. And, and it just got me to thinking about what drives other people absolutely nuts. And it's, and it's usually when you can't even say anything about it. Yeah. It's something that makes you internally like scream, but you're in a place where you can't say, you know, if you don't stop doing that, I'm just absolutely going to lose my mind. That may have happened to me last night. Uh, as is often discussed by Jim on this show, I can't, uh, you know, I just hearing people eat in a theater drives me crazy. But last night, I went beyond that. I was at the Cirque du Soleil show and people were talking in front of me, <laughs> directly in front of me and behind me. And if you're talking loudly enough that I can hear your conversation and I actually want to answer your conversation, that's a problem. <laughs> right, right, right. I know people that have no self-awareness or just don't care. Yeah. So call us and tell us what really sort of bothers the hell out of you. Uh, 877-301-8970. Call us or text us and tell us what really just kind of puts you over the edge. Let's start with Paul from Worcester. Hi, Paul. Hi, AC and JB. How are you guys today? Very Great. good. Um, so the the thing, one of the things, the big one is uh, packaging that you can't open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I and and, I, and it's especially this happened literally the other day. I bought some knives and I couldn't open them to get. I needed a knife to get to the knives. This was just kind of crazy. <laughs> um, 
I think that they should take whoever designs these things and put them in a room that's built out of the packaging that they can't open so that they understand what it's like <laughs> to try and get something out of that packaging. And you have to carve your way out of it and you have no fingernails left because they're all broken. Well, and... CDs, you cannot open. You could never open a oh, shrink-wrapped CD package. And they and never fixed that. No, they ne- They absolutely never fixed it. And you get so frustrated you didn't even care about listening to it. After, there's, uh, after... there's, a, there's a tool for that. They actually had tool. to invent a tool, right, so that you could get into a your... Little tool, a little, little blue plastic thing that has a little tiny little nub on it. Lie down and it just tears up the cellophane. That's right. It's actually kind of a neat little thing. That's you know, a good one. There's a Spin Doctor CD that I never listened to because I just couldn't, couldn't open, open it. Couldn't open it. Still lying there somewhere. We have, we have a texture that says, I really, really dislike being talked over. Yeah, that's a big one, too. Oh, it's too bad she didn't call. I could have interrupted her. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be nice. Christine, that is Christine what I think Rhode they Island. would call a trigger. Call, and I'll interrupt you and, act- and absolutely send you over the edge. Um, thank you, Paul. That was a great pet peeve. Let's go to uh, Verena. Is it from North Dartmouth? North Dartmouth. Yeah, uh, actually, Verena. Verena. Hi, Verena. Is your pet peeve people Hi, not being able to pronounce your name correctly? <laughs> yeah, that, I, I gave up on that one many years ago, but yeah, that's definitely up there. <laughs> and having to spell it and pronounce it many times. Um, so, big fan of both of yours and the show. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, this was interesting. Just this week, I was looking through my daughter's yearbook, and they had a section on the pet peeves of the seniors. And um, I found there were a lot of repetitions, one being people walking too slowly in the hallway, um, eating with your mouth open and chewing gum loudly, and um, walking slowly and then stopping abruptly in front of you. And it was so prevalent among so many people, so I asked my daughter about it. And she said they had very little time to get from one class to the other. So that's why that was so annoying. (laughs) But then I thought, doesn't everyone have the same amount of time? So why is anyone walking slowly? And I guess I was also a little surprised that at that age group, the gum chewing and the eating with your mouth open was annoying. I would have thought, you know, being 17, 18 years old, that wouldn't bother them. But there were quite a few that that bothered that is kind of a mature um, so sensibility for a young kid. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, exactly. That's, I, I guess that's what struck me. I was like, oh, wow, they're, they're ready to go out in the real world and be polite. <laughs> well, thank you for the call. That's, that's fantastic. These are the reasons kids run for student government. Exactly. So they can outlaw yeah. Yeah. really, really annoying things like this. So Zoe Matthews just uh, uh, in our, in our uh, uh, control room. Control room. Yeah. Just, uh, just let us know that uh, apparently, according at least to a Mass Live article, it's illegal to spit on the public sidewalk in Massachusetts. It's punishable by up to a twenty dollar fine. So, you know, as soon as I leave here, I will be demanding uh, <laughs> more strict enforcement of this. Um, like jaywalking, I'm sure it'll be done immediately. Are but... you really upset that you couldn't? You now realize maybe you could have arrested people. Well, now I'll try. I'll attempt a citizen's arrest, which will <laughs> yeah. undoubtedly result in a massive beating. You know, of me getting beat up. But um, well, no, no, no. It's good to know that it's against the law. It will just peeve me more now. There's a texter who who points out that it's typically men, not women, who spit. Have you? Is that that does seem to be true? It is a male. That yeah, it definitely is a male thing. I have seen women spit, um, and I'm always sort of slightly more surprised when I see it. But it is definitely a, a guy thing. All right, let's go to uh, Rama calling from Magnolia. I don't know what Magnolia is. It's, yeah, Magnolia by the sea. It's right next to Manchester by the sea. Oh. oh. 
Wow. Hi. A little ham. I call it. I call it Magnolia by the Sea. It's a little hamlet of Gloucester, village of Gloucester, technically. Oh, fantastic! Great to know. Yeah. What's your pet peeve? Yeah. Yeah. So well, I, so many pet peeves, so little time. Really, really <laughs> so many pet peeves. But but I will just say, I, I'm glad I won't get arrested because I I do spit. But when I spit, I try to spit on the grass whenever possible. Seriously. I try not to spit on the sidewalk or on pavement. Rama, and, I appreciate yeah, guys, the effort, but that does guys, not make it any better. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, you're right. Women don't spit. Women don't burp. Women don't fart. But guys do. But well, I, I don't know about those last two. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, but uh, all right. So pet peeve, the biggest pet peeve I have is about everyone being on their cell phones when they're in public, walking, the kids walking to school. Not even looking up on their cell phones, on their cell phones, on their cell phones, everywhere. And everyone, virtually everyone, texting and looking down while they're driving. Yeah, that's true. You could, aren't, you, aren't you expert now at being able to look in your rearview mirror and know exactly what somebody's doing because you can see the tilt of the head? Yep. Oh, man. No, it's constant. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, thank you for the discussion. No, we appreciate the pet peeve. Thank you for calling from your secret Gloucester village that nobody that nobody knew about. We are getting so many texts Text. about this. People, yeah. People who don't return their carriage after shopping. It's just wrong. Lots of people are upset about spitting. Lots of people are very upset about cell phone usage, especially in bookstores. People throwing, many people are angry about littering and cigarette butts. Uh, babies with iPhones or iPads in lieu of entertaining your baby yourself. That comes from Lloyd in Revere. No, they, they, it really is. These are actually very funny. There's a person who is just, you know, dr- driven crazy by leaf blowers. There's one that says, what text says, my biggest pet peeve is people who stop at yellow lights. Go. Oh. And it just reminded me that my, my mother never used to yell it, but people who would stop. For a long period of time at a stop sign for no reason or at a yellow light, she would just say very quietly, what color are you waiting for? (laughs) So I kind of get that pet peeve. Yellow lights are pink. Yeah. Yeah. You just go. It's like, no, we're just going to wait for the red and hold up everybody behind me. That actually drives me crazy as well. And then, um, and then you blow through the yellow and immediately you stop by all the you, you stop at the next light because that's how they're programmed. Right. Or you wait until it's just about to turn red and then you go, which means that the person behind you definitely has to stop at the red yeah. light. And they're really cursing you yeah. until they catch up with you at the next yellow light. That's another one of mine. Um, so let's go to Joan. Uh, Joan is calling from Boston. Joan, hi. And what's your pet peeve? Hi. My husband, who I love dearly, waits until the last <laughs> snowfall no flake has dropped before he starts to shovel and i want him to get out there and start shoveling early so it's all shoveled but he waits and waits and waits and i can't say anything to him or else he'll wait longer so <laughs> that, that's probably thing. frustrating in new england so what is happening yeah. during the snowstorm are you just staring at him fuming because he's not walking yes. outside yes i am <laughs> And try not to say anything about walking around and staring at him. Yes. Well, he just probably yeah. believes that a job well done need never be done again. So that's why you have to wait until there's till it stops snowing, at least for that day. Well, good luck. I don't know yeah. what else to tell you. It looks like I don't know. I don't know how you're going to get him out there if it's still snowing. Thank you. Thanks for your Thank pet you. peeve. Yeah, these are hilarious. Uh, I'm with people on the chewing with your mouth open too, and. Well, I don't. A lot of these are disgusting that we're talking about, so I don't even want to discuss it. Further. Yeah, a lot of them are.
are etiquette based. A lot of a lot of That's people's true. pet peeves are etiquette based. I have some that are grammar based. Like even though sometimes I end up doing it myself, I really wish people would stop using the word impact as a verb. Did like you it notice I impacted. didn't earlier? Yeah. I fall, I fall into it every now and again, and then I then I you know berate myself, but I really hate it. I yep. just really hate that yep. people use impact as a verb. Yep. Um, Betsy Meyer, who was one of my first colleagues here at GBH, and she she would not tolerate that. So every time I'm about to, I think of Betsy standing over me. Can't do that, which is hilarious. Here's one. When people use I instead of me, she gave the book to my sister and I. Because no, oh, she that's she really common. That yes. whoever whoever's pet peeve that is must be constantly, constantly peeved. People who are people late that all to the, the theater. Sorry, now I'm talking over you because I'm so excited to talk no, about I'll this. No, I'll call Christine and, and so- she'll <laughs> yell at you because she really hates it when people do that. <laughs> Should we go back to the calls? Absolutely. Let's ask, see what Nicholas Nicholas's pet peeve is. Nicholas, what bothers you? Hey, uh, so I hate to bring it back to politics. Um, but a lot of us that come here, you know, that's what we're looking for. Um, so one of my biggest pet peeves is apolitical people or people who claim to be apolitical that refuse, refuse to talk about anything political. Um, I think it's a big part of the problem in our country and creates a lot of the division because we don't know what everyone else feels. Right. Um, Man. So, so uh, what do you do if you're in a if you're if you're talking um, politics in a group, and you ask somebody a question or or you're trying to elicit opinions from around the table, and a person doesn't engage? What do you do? Um, I, I mean, I try to open the conversation up with something that I know is a common ground for most people, um, and that kind of gets everybody at the table of different ideologies talking to one another. Um, and and the hardest thing about the thing that's so frustrating about this is that everyone wants to fit themselves into these two boxes of Republican or Democrat. And the fact of the matter is that we as people are so much more um, intricate than that. There's so much more to us that it doesn't really work that way. And I think that's a source of a lot of the tension in this country right now. Well, if you yeah. can get through to people, then, you know, if you if you can find a pet peeve and then get past it, that's probably the goal, right? That, that's winning. That is winning. <laughs> well, that is it for our show today. And that, oh, it, oh okay, so you want, you want me to end the show? Well, I, okay. thought, I thought you were going to, but All if right. you'd like to, I will. Uh, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep with us, up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the pet peeves. They're hilarious, some of the ones that are still coming in. So tune in tomorrow back at the library with Jim and Marjorie. And again, as we've been talking about all show, they're going to have a raffle tomorrow. If you show up in person, you can enter the raffle to win one of three smug mugs. Tomorrow's guests include Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Leung, media maven Sue O'Connell, me. I'll be there with our, my latest arts roundup tomorrow. Jared never leaves the studio. I know that. Exactly. Pet peeve when, when my pillows aren't fluffed here in the studio. <laughs> Food policy analyst Corby Cummer and a live Music Friday performance by players from Boston Broke ahead of their annual performance of Handel's Messiah. Our crew is Zoe Matthews, Aidan Connolly, and Mackenzie Farkas. Additional support provided by Gia Orsino and Brendan Deedy. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. Our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. I want to remind people that Greater Boston is on tonight with Sue O'Connell in for Jim Browdy. She is talking about post-Twitter options. Where do you go if you want to stay on social media? But 
can't stand what Elon Musk's done to Twitter, and this is gonna sound so horrible, but I'm on that show too, talking about the <laughs> with the stars of the musical six. I guess I don't leave this place. My pet peeve is Jared's work schedule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this has been a blast with you today. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. I'm back next uh, Thursday, I think. Great. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm Andrea Cabral. Have a great day. <laughs>